Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 42. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Episode 42. 42. The number worn by NBA great James Worthy. The number worn by Yankees great Mariano Rivera. And the number, of course, worn by the great Jackie Robinson. And the number worn by 49ers great Ronnie Lott. Which is fitting, because Ronnie Lott won four Super Bowls and played in 20 playoff games. The playoffs are a time when the great ones emerge. The playoffs are a time when the stakes are the highest. The playoffs are a time when the wheat is separated from the chaff. Uh, Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? Yes, playoffs. It's time for the playoffs. In the playoffs, every play matters. Every star is needed and every moment counts. The regular season is gone. The Iowa caucus is almost here, and the Super Bowl is right around the corner. So you know what that means. It's time for the playoffs. Only four teams left in the NFL, and only six candidates left on the debate stage this week. So the playoffs are here for football and for politics. And even during the playoffs, especially during the playoffs, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. I say like this, though, right? It's a vulnerable time for a lot of these young dudes, you feel me? They don't be taking care of their chicken right, you feel me? So if it was me or if I had an opportunity to let these little uh, young sahibs know something, I say take care of y'all money, African, because that shit don't last forever. Now, I done been on the other side of a retirement, and it's good when you get over there and you can do what the fuck you want to. So i tell y'all right now while y'all in it, take care of y'all bread. So when y'all done, go ahead and take care of yourself. So while y'all at it right now, take care of y'all bodies. You know what I mean? Don't take care of y'all chicken. You feel me? Don't take care of y'all mentals. Because, look, we ain't lasting that long. Um, you know, I had a couple players that I played with that, you know what I mean? They no longer here no more. They no longer. So, I mean, you feel me? Start taking care of y'all mentals, y'all bodies, and y'all chicken. That's Marshawn Lynch. Star running back for the Seattle Seahawks, who came out of retirement for just the playoffs and had a great couple games. Four touchdowns in three games. And an important message, a uniquely Marshawn Lynchy message. But his team lost. And that's reason for a lot of folks to be angry. There are lots of angry, or at least disappointed, Americans this week in Seattle, in Minnesota, in Houston, and definitely in Baltimore. And folks are still angry in New Orleans and New England. And after next week, two more cities will be added to that list as their teams are knocked out of the playoffs. Just like in the campaigns for the two candidates that were knocked out this week from the 2020 election. In the NFL and on the campaign trail, this is the time for the big stage. This is the time for the big-time players to shine. This is the time for the veterans to show their experience. The time for the rookies to impress or collapse. The Super Bowl is less than one month away, and so is the Iowa caucus, and we're all about to find out who's the real deal and who's going to have to try again next season. Whether you're Cory Booker or Tom Brady, the message for them is the same. Take care of y'all chicken. Yeah, listen to Marshawn Lynch. Take care of y'all's chicken and recognize that this is the playoffs, the playoffs for football, but also 
for the future of America. And stakes is high. Stakes is high and never been higher. We're still on the edge of escalation with Iran. North Korea still has nukes. Our president has still been impeached. Our troops are still deployed overseas in combat and dying. Our politics is still deeply divided. Our infrastructure is still crumbling. Our fellow Americans are still dying from opioids. Shootings are still happening. Democrats are still eating their own. Russians are still attacking our elections. Our enemies are still celebrating. Scooters still suck. We still have a shortage of public bathrooms across America. And impeachment is now headed to the Senate for a trial. And President Mayhem is still at the helm for all of it. I spoke to Secretary General yesterday, and uh, we had a great conversation. He was very, uh, uh, I think he was actually excited by it. And I actually had a name, NATO, right? And then you have M.E., Middle East, you're called Natomi. I said, what a beautiful name, Natomi. I'm good at names, right? USMCA, like the song, YMCA. Everybody, nobody could remember USMCA. I said, think of the song, YMCA. Now everybody says it. They don't remember the previous name of a bad deal, okay? commonly known as NAFTA. Now, uh, if you add the words, if you add the two words, but at least at the end of it, because that's a big problem. That's a big source of problems. And NATO me. Doesn't that work beautifully, John? Think of that. NATO plus me. And uh, he's not, obviously, he's not getting it. He's not smiling. He used to smile. Before I ran, he was smiling. Now he's not smiling. No, none of us are smiling because this is a dangerous time, a critical time. And when you're headed into the playoffs, You want a steady hand, an experienced player, a strong and clear-headed leader. In the playoffs, you want Tom Brady. But instead, we've got Andy Dalton or Mark Sanchez. Every time Trump does a press conference without a teleprompter, it's like one gigantic geopolitical butt fumble. Mark Sanchez not expecting it, and it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Yep. And that's our commander-in-chief, our daily catastrophe, our national embarrassment, our president mayhem. I'm a filthy rich executive. I hear the markets down a million points. I freak out. I spill my large espresso. The searing pain makes me slam on the brakes. Uh-oh, your fault. And your cut rate insurance may not cover my $90,000 car, so I sue you because that's what I do. And the game is on to beat him. But who will it be? Who will be the last man or woman standing? Who will try to knock out the defending champion? Well, just a few months from now, we'll all know. But until then, the road to the White House, just like the road to the Super Bowl in Miami, goes on and is hitting a new level. There was another debate this week in Iowa. Another one's coming up in New Hampshire on February 7th, a ninth debate on February 19th in Las Vegas, another one in Charleston, South Carolina on February 25th, with more to come after that. And this weekend, the road to the Super Bowl in Miami goes through San Francisco and Kansas City, two very tough places to play. And the road to the White House goes through Iowa, through New Hampshire, through Vegas, and through South Carolina, all also tough places to play when it comes to politics. 
but the road to the White House also goes through New York City. Every candidate will likely spend more time in New York City than most other states in America. It's where they'll do more fundraising than any other place. It's where they'll do more media than any other place. And it's where more of them have a direct personal connection than any other place. So New York City, not even the whole state, but the 300 miles of the five boroughs, or even more so, the 22.82 square miles on that tiny magical island of Manhattan, that may be the most critical battleground state or city of all. From the small, intimate fundraisers and massive penthouses owned by business moguls, movie stars, and hedge fund masters, to the sets of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Saturday Night Live, they'll all be here often over the next year. And whether it's Donald Trump or Andrew Yang or Mike Bloomberg, many of them have or still do call New York City home. Like it or not, for better or worse, The road to the White House not only goes through Iowa and New Hampshire, it also goes through New York City. And in this episode, we've got an incredible guest who's the unofficial mayor of New York City, a man who has moderated more debates than almost anyone, a man who served as a panelist in the massively important 2016 Democratic presidential debate in Brooklyn between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. It was in April 2016 just five days before the crucial primary election in New York. And it would serve to be Bernie Sanders' last stand before Clinton eventually got the nomination. But the great Errol Lewis was on that stage, a steady, strong, focused voice to keep things on track and to represent the people. Errol Lewis is a guy who made it all the way to that national stage after himself starting out in the projects as the humble son of a cop. If you know Errol Lewis, you're really going to love this conversation, and you'll hear a personal, candid side of Errol you've never heard before. If you don't know him, his voice and his experience will have you hooked in a way you'll never forget, like that perfect slice of New York pizza. And Errol's experience is exactly what we need right now. Errol's moderated dozens of debates between candidates for mayor, public advocate, city and state comptroller, state attorney general. United States Senate, and President. If the primary debates are the first few rounds of the playoffs, Errol Lewis has been a head referee for season after season. He's seen games big and small, and he can break them down in a way that only someone with that extremely astute and well-trained eye can. A good moderator is like a good ref. When they're doing their job well, you forget they're even there. And the players in the game are what dominate your attention. And Errol Lewis has been a referee for New York and for all Americans for a generation. But in this pod, I ask him to also add some color commentary to the game, to not just be a ref, but also be a bit of a Tony Romo, break down the game like only he can, and like Tony Romo, predict the future and tell us what to look at next. Like Tony Romo, Errol Lewis has also been a player. In 1997, he ran for New York City Council himself. And he'll share an incredible story about that and what happened afterward that you won't forget. That's coming up soon. I'll also have some positive action you can take to help make a difference in these important times and details about more upcoming live events and guests to include a very big one on the West Coast next month. So stick around after Errol for that. We've got news. But before we get to that conversation with Errol, the playoffs are here. 
for Democrats, for Republicans, and especially for all you independents like me, and for America. And we've got an episode to take you through all of it. This is my latest attempt to add light to contrast all the heat in this country and give you a playbook for effective debate watching for the next year. Last episode with Mazdak Rossi, which many of you enjoyed, I told you to breathe. In this episode, it's time to put in the work, to get out our playbooks and do the learning, and to get ready for the escalation of our politics, news, and culture that's coming. An escalation like we've never before seen in our lifetime. Yeah, the playoffs are a time when superstars emerge and amateurs are revealed. It's a time when you find out what teams and players are really made of. But this is no game. These are real issues and real lives that hang in the balance. And even during the playoffs, there are issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And here's my latest breakdown on what you need to know. It starts with impeachment. It's happening, people. That, I thank them all for their leadership and their service, and I'm now going to proceed to sign the articles. Democrats are angry. Republicans are angry. Cable news isn't angry because they're about to get a ratings bonanza. But it's on. The stakes of this giant game continue to increase. The crowd is growing. The cameras are getting brighter. The House impeachment managers have been named by Speaker Pelosi. And they carried, hand-carried, the two charges against Donald Trump across the Capitol. The charges, as we've covered before, are, of course, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And they delivered them to the Senate with a formal notification that it's on. They're ready to begin only the third presidential impeachment trial in American history. The House managers who will prosecute the case against the president in the Senate are Representative Adam Schiff of California, who will be the lead manager. Jerry Nadler of New York, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, Jason Crow of Colorado, Zoe Lofgren of California, Val Demings of Florida, and Sylvia Garcia of Texas. So the trial of President Trump starts next week. And you, the people, will be the ultimate jury. So stay tuned, get your popcorn ready, and your constitution, because it's about to get loud. And if you want good reason to get loud yourself outside of a football stadium or a local political rally or protest, here's a damn good reason to be angry. A 69-year-old veteran named Jerry Holloman had his prosthetic legs repossessed in Mississippi. Yes, really. Say what? Yep. The Clarion Ledger, the daily newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi, had the story. Jerry Holloman served in the active duty in the Army twice, as an 18-year-old specialist in Vietnam and as a 53-year-old master sergeant in Iraq. He earned bronze stars in both wars and served 40 years in the military. And while in Vietnam, Holloman, like so many others, was exposed to Agent Orange, a chemical that the American military used to kill vegetation. And it's also a chemical that's caused diseases in Vietnamese and U.S. service members, including cancer and diabetes. I'm going through deep depression. I, I, I really want to throw in the towel. Why is it worth living? Mm-hmm. Because of the loss of it, because them repossessing my legs like that. I was going through therapy to try to get up and walk and go home. It's not even worth it anymore. Yep. So, 
Holloman got a pair of prosthetic legs in August from a company called Hanger, which has offices in Hattiesburg. He held on to the paperwork, including some handwritten notes about how to use and clean his prosthetic legs, and then he started going through rehab at the nursing home. And after a few sessions with the Hanger staff, Holloman said he was told the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs would not pay for his prosthetic legs. Now, Susan Barcy, a spokesman at the VA Medical Center in Jackson, said she could not comment on Holloman's case due to privacy laws. And the prosthetics company also responded. When the Clarion Ledger reached out to Hanger, a spokeswoman said they did not deny Holloman's account of having his prosthetic legs taken. She said she could not confirm or deny it because federal privacy laws, again, prevented Hanger from speaking about individual clients. Now, what the spokeswoman said was, Hanger Clinic does not take back prosthetic legs after final delivery to a patient has been made. That's what they said in a statement. However, they also said final delivery is only complete when, quote, a patient has signed a verification of receipt that allows a claim for payment to be submitted to the applicable insurance payer. Because Jerry didn't sign the Medicare paperwork, it appears that Jerry had possession of the legs while the hangar company simultaneously considered those legs undelivered. So they took them back. They repossessed the guy's legs. Now, after the press and all kinds of other hell, he got his legs back, but it's unclear why. Holloman thinks it's because he contacted the media. And when the Clarion Ledger reached out to the company Hanger about the return of Jerry's legs, they reiterated that federal privacy laws prevent them from talking about the case. And the company said they are, quote, committed to empowering human potential and want to see our patients regain their mobility and independence. But that's not what Jerry said he was told. Because the legs are basically useless if Hanger won't make any more adjustments. And without those adjustments, he's just stuck at the VA home. Depression and anxiety are setting in. But thanks to this coverage and you listening right now, hopefully we can raise some more hell and get this fixed and have this guy never have to worry about his legs being repossessed or broken again. So this is what we're talking about, folks. If you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. So Secretary Wilkie, Veterans Affairs Secretary, if you're listening, can you please sort this out ASAP? You can use the hashtag Angry Americans or hit me up. This is an issue that's got people on fire all across the country. And as Australia continues to burn, it's a Super Bowl for firefighters and first responders from there and from around the world. And every day is a Super Bowl for our troops, especially those in the Gulf. Where this week, way off the radar, you probably didn't even know there was a near catastrophic international incident. Well, this video now just in from the U.S. Navy in the Middle East. This happened yesterday. A U.S. destroyer, the Farragut, was sailing in the North Arabian Sea when this Russian warship came up behind it. And you need to look at this video. You will see the Russian ship continue to approach, approach, and approach. It came within 60 yards of the U.S. Navy's ship. The U.S. Navy had to, this Navy ship, the Farragut, had to sound five alarms, an international signal for danger of a collision. But it wasn't until they conducted radio bridge-to-bridge communications that the Russians turned and backed away. They came within 60 yards. Uh, my colleague Ryan Brown has learned that the Navy ship was sailing there at the time to protect the aircraft carrier Harry Truman. Of course, these are very sensitive waters right now. You can hear some of the blast sensitive waters because of the situation with Iran. The Russians did turn away, but the U.S. feels this was a very aggressive action by them. And you can assume they're making the video public to the world to show what the Russians did. That's CNN's brilliant Pentagon reporter, Barbara Starr. 
And there are some angry people on those boats. But in the high-stakes world of military operations, as our president continues to rattle sabers, the margin of error for our troops is zero. Throwing an interception or fumbling the ball in the playoffs in the Middle East means more than just a temporary loss. It could mean the massive loss of life and being yanked into a military conflict. And yeah, the Russians are always around. They're like the bad weather at Lambeau Field. You can pretty much expect they'll pop up every season just to keep things interesting and difficult. And when the stakes are this high, the margin of error is incredibly small and could result in a catastrophe, like the downing of a civilian airliner full of innocent people. Now, James Laporta, Marine veteran and investigative reporter at Newsweek, broke this story first. We now know the Ukrainian flight that crashed just outside the Iranian capital of Tehran was struck by an anti-aircraft missile. A senior U.S. intelligence official and an Iraqi intelligence official told Newsweek and Laporta first. Now, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to episode 31 of this podcast with James Laporta. He explains what it's like to cover stories like this, and how he keeps landing big exclusives, beating many of the more experienced reporters to the punch. But Laporta had the story first. And now, the New York Times has verified security camera footage that shows two missiles hit the Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 on January 8th. The missiles were launched from an Iranian military site about eight miles from the plane. And the new video fills a gap about why the plane's transponder stopped working seconds before it was hit by a second missile. It's a tragedy of the biggest magnitude, and there are plenty of angry Americans, and even more angry Canadians. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I think if there were no uh, tensions, if there was no uh, escalation recently in the region, uh, those uh, Canadians would be right now home with their families. Uh, This is something that happens when you have conflict and war. Innocents bear the brunt of it. And it is a reminder why all of us need to work so hard on de-escalation, on moving forward to reduce tensions and find a pathway that doesn't involve further conflict and killing. Did the U.S. warn Canada that it was going to target and kill General Soleimani and potentially put Canadian troops in danger through that action? No, we didn't get a heads up. Does that annoy you? Is that the wrong thing to do? The U.S. makes its determinations. Uh, We attempt uh, to work uh, as an international community on big issues, but uh, sometimes uh, countries uh, take actions without informing their allies. Would you have preferred to have a warning? Uh, Obviously. He believes the U.S. escalation is partly to blame for the deaths of the people on that plane. And so do most Canadians. No Americans were killed that night. Trump talked about it a lot. But 57 Canadians were. And that's what can happen when the escalation continues. And the escalation of anger continues. And it's not just Canadians and Americans who are angry about it. Many Iranians are angry, too. That's the sound of thousands of people inside Iran. And they're not chanting death to America. What they're chanting is, America isn't our enemy. Our enemy is here in Iran. In Tehran and elsewhere across Iran, anger in the streets has been palpable. The country has had days of angry demonstrations after the government finally admitted that it accidentally shot down that Ukrainian Airlines passenger jet during the confrontation with the United States. Now, these protesters, interestingly, are also refusing to walk on the American and Israeli flag that the government painted on the ground, an amazing sign of support. 
Now, there are reports that the government may be firing on these protesters. But one thing is clear. Just like in America, in Iran, the people and the government are not one and the same. The oppressive Ayatollah speaks for all Iranians no more than Donald Trump speaks for all Americans. So in this terrible crisis, there may be opportunity. The people of Iran, just like the people anywhere else, don't like to be lied to by their government. And this is being called a possible Chernobyl moment, a tipping point. As we focus on in this show all the time, anger is real. Anger is understandable, especially in situations like this. But anger can be turned into positive action here at home, in Iran, and around the world. So stay vigilant, people, and watch this space. And the space you got to always watch is the 2020 race for the White House, and it's rolling on. Just like Wild Card Week in the NFL, it's been a wild one. And things have changed dramatically. There have been some surprises, some upsets, some QBs and teams that are knocked out for good. But the historically large, often annoyingly large, field of Democratic candidates is thinning fast, and the reigning champion is enjoying the bye weeks and getting ready for later. But the 2020 race is on, people, and it's playoff season. So early in 2020, we're down to the divisional playoffs. In football and in politics, the flashes in the pan are gone. Lamar Jackson is off to go play golf with Tom Brady, and so are two more candidates for president. Most of the upstarts are gone, except for a few. And the Tennessee Titans continue to shock the world, just like Andrew Yang. The 49ers have home field advantage and a number one seed, just like Joe Biden. And everyone's getting ready for Iowa. So who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down? Who's feeling confident like the Kansas City Chiefs? And who bombed out like the Baltimore Ravens? The 2020 race goes on, and here's what you need to know. Leading off, it's all about Iowa right now. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. The latest Democratic debate was in Iowa, but two candidates weren't there and won't be around for the caucuses. Two more candidates for president have dropped out, and we're going to pour a little out for them. First, Cory Booker. Now look, Cory Booker added some significant light to contrast all the heat, and with that especially, I think he made a positive impact. I am literally here on this stage right now. Because 50 years ago, there was a lawyer on a couch who changed his life, changed his mind to get up and start representing families, one of them mine, who were discriminated against them. Ours is the story of the faith we have had in one another. We know beating Donald Trump is the floor, it is not the ceiling. It gets us out of a valley, it does not get us to the mountaintop. It's not going to be a referendum on who he is. It's going to be a referendum on who we are and who we are to each other and for each other. That's the video he posted. And it sounds damn good. It's a positive message that Booker continued to push out over the campaign, but he never really got traction. And Trump, of course, couldn't bite his tongue or hold his tweets. He wrote on Twitter, really big news, kidding. Booker, who is in zero polling territory, just dropped out of the Democratic presidential primary race. Now I can rest easy tonight. I was so concerned that I would someday have to go head to head with him. So, you know, Trump never misses an opportunity to take a shot at somebody. But Booker's going to be just fine. He continues to serve as a senator, and some of his fans are now mourning the lost possibility of First Lady Rosario Dawson after her boyfriend Booker dropped out of the presidential race. But Booker will be around. 
if the Dems win the White House, seeing where Booker lands could be especially interesting. Maybe the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Maybe the Attorney General. Maybe the Supreme Court. But he added light to all the heat, and for that, all Americans should be grateful. And in another way, we can all be grateful for another candidate who dropped out this week. Marion Williamson is out. Marion Williamson. There's only one Marion Williamson. She kind of stole the show in the July debate, and she became the butt of many jokes. But she also made some sense sometimes. Sometimes. And she actually made the stage. Think about that. Marion Williamson made the stage and always made an impact. And maybe, along the way, she sent a few messages that Dems would be smart to remember in the days ahead. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us and Donald Trump will win. Williamson also pitched voters on six policy pillars for a season, which he called a season of moral repair, a financial policy that opposed trickle-down economics, creating a department of children and youth, a mass mobilization to reverse climate change, creating a department of peace, and investing in African-American communities as reparations for slavery, and what she called a whole health plan. Look, she caught a lot of shit. But she's also been vocal on a number of political issues of the years. She was an early activist in the late 80s and continued to offer counseling to HIV-positive patients and did something called Project Angel Food, a charity that delivered meals to people with HIV and AIDS. So Marianne Williamson, in the end, is a positive force, and I'm sure we won't see the last of her. And she was memorable. And she actually had a real following, including many folks who didn't really follow politics before. And making that happen... I do believe is a true public service. So we can all really look forward to her speech at the Democratic National Convention, I hope. But until then, we'll always have this. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes, and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and, sir, love will win. So Marion Williamson will be out there somewhere waiting to take the field in the general election against Trump, superpowers and all. And she was not on the debate stage, which from an entertainment perspective was a loss. But it was the biggest debate yet, in part because it was the smallest one yet. There were only six candidates on the stage. The number of the day really hops and kicks. The number of the day is... Six. So that's the number. Yes, yes, 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 that's the number of the day. That's the number. Yes, yes, that's the number, number of the day. Six. Six. Only six. Two less than the number of teams in the NFL playoffs last week. And the Super Six were Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, Klobuchar, and Steyer. No Bloomberg. No Gabbard, no Yang, no Deval Patrick. Yes, he's still running. None of them were up there. And just as a reminder, Bill Weld and Joe Walsh are technically still running on the Republican side against Trump, but they're easy to forget too. But it was just six up there. 
And in the end, the debate felt like one big draw, which ultimately is a victory for the frontrunners, I think, especially Biden. Other winners, a real national security discussion, the AUMF, the Authorized Use of Military Force, which was actually a discussion topic, universal infant care, which is a good idea for Democrats, I think a good idea for Republicans, and a good idea for America, which we really hadn't heard about until this debate. Steyer and Klobuchar are winners simply for making the stage. Losers, MSNBC and Fox, whose ratings couldn't keep up. Tulsi Gabbard, who was a non-factor. But I think it was also a winning night for Andrew Yang. He got more traction and his supporters were even more galvanized because he didn't make the stage. And for the folks that did, there weren't really that many highlights. Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a fine debate, nothing spectacular, but he did have a strong moment that we predicted a few weeks ago during our interview on this pod. We can continue to remain engaged without having an endless commitment of ground troops. But what's going on right now is the president's actually sending more. The very president who said he was going to end endless war, who pretended to have been against the war in Iraq all along, though we know that's not true, now has more troops going to the Middle East. And whenever I see that happen, I think about the day we shipped out and the time that was set aside for saying goodbye to family members. I remember walking with a friend of mine, another lieutenant I trained with, as we walked away and his one-and-a-half-year-old boy was toddling after him, not understanding why his father wasn't turning back to scoop him up. And it took all the strength he had not to turn around and look at his boy one more time. That is happening by the thousands right now as we see so many more troops sent into harm's way. And my perspective is to ensure that that will never happen when there is an alternative as commander-in-chief. Buttigieg continues to dial up his attacks on Donald Trump by contrasting his own military service. And it seems to be working. And when he was on this show, I asked him if he'd do more of it in the days ahead. His answer, his full answer, go back and check out episode 37. It's the episode with Pete Buttigieg, and it's our most popular episode yet. But Pete Buttigieg powerfully talked about his military service and talked about loss, the human loss that can happen around war. And so meanwhile, even during the debates, forever war continues. And so does the dying. As the debate was happening, in the same hours, Vice President Mike Pence was at Dover Air Force Base for the return ceremony for the remains of two U.S. soldiers killed in Afghanistan this week. Two American service members were killed and two others were wounded this week by an IED improvised explosive device blast in southern Afghanistan. And the bodies of those two soldiers came home to the United States as the debates were happening. The two soldiers killed were identified as Staff Sergeant Ian Paul McLaughlin of Newport News, Virginia, and Private First Class Miguel Angel Villalon of Juliet, Illinois. There were two paratroopers assigned to Company B, 307th Airborne Engineer Battalion, 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne, out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. McLaughlin is survived by his wife and four children, and Villalon is survived by his mom and his dad. Mourn their deaths, but also celebrate their lives. Take a few minutes to read about them. And if you want to help, support TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. It's a charity I've mentioned a number of times on this pod and is always linked on our social media. So as the debate was happening, there are still 13,000 American troops in Afghanistan. And for a change, the debate actually focused on them and related issues. 
There was tons of national security in the first 15 minutes. Hooray. That's the upside of the tension in the last couple of weeks and was a welcome change to start the debates of 2020. At least for one night, we weren't calling it Forgotistan. Now, all the candidates said they'd end the war in Afghanistan, but as always, offered few specifics. And it's hard to believe them. Saying you're going to end wars is the easiest thing in politics. Doing it is one of the hardest. Ask Obama and Trump. They all say they're going to do it, but we're still there. It was great to hear the candidates focused on the AUMF, so long overdue, so crucial. They talked about nukes, too, at minute 24. It was like a dream debate for all of us who focus on national security and military affairs. So props to CNN for getting that one. And shout out to my buddy Chris Cuomo for covering it. Now, Senator Amy Klobuchar was still up there, but she had kind of a rough moment when her frequent name dropping and extensive storytelling finally caught up with her. Uh, You don't have to be the loudest person. You have to be competent. And when you look at the facts, uh, Michigan has a woman governor right now, and she beat a Republican, Gretchen Whitmer. Kansas has a woman governor right now, and she beat Chris Kobach. And her name um, is, I'm very proud to know her, and her name is um, uh, Governor Kelly. Thank you. For the most part, it felt like a draw. Democrats were still being Democrats. That means eating their own. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were going at it. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) I disagreed. That's just one clip. And it was a messy and unflattering few minutes, I think, for all of them. The Dems always eat their own, and most of America is sick and tired of watching it, while... Trump is celebrating it. Bernie Sanders allegedly told Elizabeth Warren in a private meeting that a woman could not be elected president, according to some people familiar with the conversation. Now, he's denied the remark, and the fight goes on. And maybe the most noteworthy moment of the debate actually happened after it was over. And CNN had the exclusive. With applause still ringing at the end of the Democratic debate in Iowa last night, the simmering feud between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders suddenly boiled over. A liar on national TV? What? I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that discussion. You called me. You told me. All right, let's not do it now. I don't want to get in the middle, but I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah, good. Okay. She walked away without a handshake after intentionally trying to de-escalate the fight earlier in the debate. Bernie is my friend, and I am not here to try to fight with Bernie. But Warren wanted to make a point that a woman can win the presidency. It was one of the most memorable lines of the night. Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women. They were sparring over a comment Warren says Sanders made during a private meeting in 2018 that a woman couldn't win the White House. Sanders strongly denied ever making such an assertion. As a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Sanders is right about that. I think Sanders is wrong on lots of things, but he's right about that. This is what Trump wants. And it's what the media wants, too. They love a good fight. But Trump loves to watch Democrats do what they do so often and eat their own. But at least this night, they didn't come after Biden that much. And old Joe seems to be hanging in there. This is not his first playoff run and maybe had his best moment of the debate at the end and laid out 
his best play to beat Trump. Character is on the ballot this time around. The American character is on the ballot. Not what Donald Trump is spewing out, the hate, the xenophobia, the racism. That's not who we are as a nation. Everyone in this country is entitled to be treated with respect and dignity. Every single solitary person has to have in a position that way, in fact, we treat them with decency. It's about fundamental basic decency. We in the United States of America can put up with, we can overcome four years of Donald Trump. But eight years of Donald Trump will be an absolute disaster and fundamentally change this nation. We have to restore America's soul, as I've said from the moment I announced. It is in jeopardy under this president of the United States. We lead the world when we lead by example, not by our power. We, in fact, have to regain the respect of the world in order to be able to change things. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a position right now, we have to remember who we are. This is the United States of America. There's not a single thing beyond our capacity to do if we do it together. Let's go do it. Let's go do it. He almost sounded like a motivating guy right there. It wasn't quite Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, but it was a start. And character is on the ballot. He's right. And that's why he might be able to beat Trump if he gets the nomination. And it's why he's continuing to do well in most of the polls and is still the likely favorite. And some new polling came out this week that I always encourage you to take with a grain of salt. New Iowa poll came out from Monmouth, and it has Biden at 24%, Sanders next at 18 Buttigieg close by at 17 Warren right behind that at 15 Klobuchar at 8 and everyone else at or below 4%. There's also a new national poll worth noting, which is most notable because some of these polls are necessary to qualify for the next debate. But Biden is leading strongly nationally with 25%. Bernie Sanders next at 19%. Warren close behind at 16%. Buttigieg nationally only at 8%. And Bloomberg surging at 6% nationally. Yang hanging in there with 5% and everyone else at or below 4%. So these polls are sort of fun to dig into. It's like looking at yards per carry or completion percentage. It might give you some insight, but it hardly means you can predict the outcome of the game and whether or not you'll cover the spread, no matter how good your players are. But the candidates and the teams are continuing to rush to pick up high-powered free agents. That means surrogates. We talked last week about Judge Judy coming out for Bloomberg. And this week, Mandy Moore, the actress, endorsed Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And then this week, Maybe the most fun and interesting endorsement so far came to the most fun and interesting candidate so far. Dave Chappelle endorsed Andrew Yang. The great Dave Chappelle, the great comedian, came out and surprisingly, I think, endorsed Andrew Yang. Here's Yang's reaction. You got a big endorsement yesterday from uh, big, big comedian Dave Chappelle. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's been a thrill getting to know Dave. Uh, He's a parent like me. He's concerned about the state of the country and the future. And he also has the same hopes I do, that we can come together and actually start to improve our lives. And government has to be the leader in that. So I'm thrilled to campaign with Dave in South Carolina later this month. I've been a huge fan of his for years. Uh, You know, at the beginning of this campaign, someone asked me who my favorite comedian was, and I just answered Dave Chappelle, and I was honest. Uh, And then now here we are uh, working together months later. That's Yang on MSNBC with Stephanie Rule, who joined us in a future episode. But America Needs Yang was trending worldwide. Now, Yang continues to be the most interesting candidate that everyone loves, but few will vote for. 
And coming up, I ask Errol Lewis about Yang's prospects for 2020, which might include running for mayor of New York City. So with Dave Chappelle in his corner, Andrew Yang running for mayor of New York City could be more fun to watch than Marshawn Lynch in the playoffs and could be equally impactful. And even more impactful and increasingly impactful, despite not being on the field for the debate, is Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Because Tom Steyer has shown by making the debate stage this week, ugh, just like building a team to win in the playoffs, in politics, money talks. Money will talk throughout 2020. And Bloomberg will be spending money like the New York Yankees without a salary cap. This week, Bloomberg announced he would actually fund his massive campaign effort through November, even if he loses the Democratic nomination. He'll continue paying hundreds of staffers and funding his digital operation to beat Trump, even if he's not the nominee. That's a big deal. It's something I've encouraged you to watch for. Bloomberg's firepower will be a major difference maker even if he's not the nominee, and maybe especially if he's not. And it's something we'll dig deeper on with our guest, Errol Lewis, in just a few minutes. No reporter has covered and analyzed Bloomberg close up more than Errol Lewis, and he'll share his insights on what to expect from the billionaire former mayor in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Until then, the bracket is narrowing. Candidates are dropping out faster than the hopes of Charger fans that Tom Brady will be their quarterback next season. And we're all about to find out which of the presidential candidates can go all the way, which ones have the strength, the endurance, and the discipline to make it. And we're essentially down to seven. And after Iowa, it'll be much less. By the time March Madness starts in college basketball, we could be down to half that. Yep, it's getting serious on the campaign trail. And more and more candidates are knocked out of the playoffs and off the debate stages. And thankfully, We've still got a few more weeks of football in 2020 to provide an escape, sort of. And the NFL playoffs roll on. Gotta love that song. Even though CBS is my third favorite network to have broadcasting football, even the third best football song is damn good. Just like the last round of the playoffs, which had some big upsets. How many times has it been since both the number one and number two seed in the conference have been eliminated on divisional playoff weekend? Three. The last time was in 2008, but it was an awesome weekend of games. It started out with the 49ers beating the Vikings 27-10, and it's good to see the 49ers good again. Nick Bosa, their young defensive end, is dynamite, and him, George Kittle, Richard Sherman, they all bring some very special energy, and this team believes. And this team, I think has what it takes to win it all. Then we had the Titans and the Ravens, with the Titans upsetting the number one Ravens 28-12 in Baltimore. This game was a case study in why coaching matters. Vrabel's team was ready, tight, and focused. Harbaugh's was not. And I think Derrick Henry, their running back for Tennessee, is a cyborg. Vrabel has the Titans playing out of their mind, and the Ravens were totally asleep. Lamar Jackson looked very much like the young QB that he is, And this is what can happen when a well-coached team really believes in themselves. Watch out for the Titans. They could do anything. Another wild one. The Houston Texans went into Arrowhead in Kansas City and lost 31-51 to to the Chiefs. They were up 24 to nothing before blowing a massive lead. 
Now, this was the biggest momentum shift in the shortest period of time I can remember in an NFL playoff game. The Chiefs finally look like the team they've been capable of being for so long. And with Patrick Mahomes at QB, they might be able to ride this momentum all the way. And after all these years, few fan bases deserve it more than the Chiefs fans. And in the last game, the Packers beat the Seahawks 28-23 to in Lambeau Field. Aaron Rodgers did it again. And a great sidebar. The Griffin brothers, two of my favorite players in the NFL for the Seahawks, actually combined on a sack with Aaron Rodgers. Shaquem and Shaquille are twin brothers. They both played in college together at University of Central Florida. And Shaquem is an amputee who lost one hand when he was four years old. And despite all that, he made the NFL, made the Seahawks, and had a playoff sack with his twin brother. They're two of the most inspirational guys you'll ever see, and everybody should root for them no matter who your team is. But Aaron Rodgers did it again. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the most accurate QB of our time, and he continues to do big things for the Packers. There are lots of great moments. That's what the playoffs are all about, just like the debates. But like politics, they're also about strategy. They're about planning and about coaching, about leadership. And another great moment happened this weekend. During the game, focused on a leader who most that watched his career would probably consider an angry American. It was a very special surprise for a very special leader, the legendary Steelers Super Bowl winning coach, Bill Cowher. David Baker, president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And on behalf of all of those of us who love this game and the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it is my great This isn't right that this is happening right now, but... (laughs) Okay, never mind. No, please come back back here, David. Coach, I want to thank you for all you've done for the game for all you're going to do for the game. And I want to welcome you to Canton, Ohio, where your bronze hey, and your yeah. legacy How about that, Bill? Thank you, Congratulations. 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 Uh, guys, folks, did you see him hugging his wife, V, his daughter, Megan? As tearful as Bill oh, is. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. Hey, check, Mr. Baker, good Best to see you. Best everybody. That's really good. Hey, folks, keep this in mind. Out of 29,000 people who played the game, coached the game, or contributed to the game, Bill Cower is down to 327th one in the Hall of Fame, 182nd living one, coach speech. Um. <laughs> you know, I just tell him, V, I says, I've come to grips. I'm okay. Um, if it doesn't happen, um, I've been so blessed. And I would just say this for those eight candidates, every one of you deserve to be there. Um, football is a total team sport. Um, I had some great players, some great coaches, the best organization in football. Um, I've lived a blessed life. I've come to the best network on TV. It's a family here, like it was a family that we had there. And to have to give back to something, to the game of football, it's been a part of my life. The virtues that it teaches you, the morals that you have the obligation to move on, the platforms that we have. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a blessed man. And mm. I've been very blessed to be surrounded by some very special people. Now, Coach Bill Cower is a true legend and a truly fine man and a damn good dancer. I've been honored to know him. And he was a board member at IAVA for many years, a huge supporter of veterans and many other causes. And he was the dancing star at my wedding a few years ago. And he's an incredible leader and a patriot. He's done as much off the field as he's done on it. 
He's been a mentor and a role model to me and countless others who've been honored to know him. So well-deserved. So congratulations, Coach Cower. Now, needless to say, I wish Coach Cower were the new coach of the Giants rather than Joe Judge, and I hope maybe he'll join us on the show in the future. But look for him in the Hall of Fame coming soon. Now, related to football, I told you something last week that makes me angry. Political commercials during my football. Now, I definitely want Tom Steyer off the debate stage and out of my football. And I'm also really hoping Ron Reagan Jr. doesn't jump into football with those weird atheist commercials that were running during the debate. But I told you last episode that Trump and Bloomberg will both be dropping $10 million for 60 seconds of Super Bowl ad time. But there's something else to consider. The Super Bowl will be broadcast on Fox this year. So we'll get Terry, Howie, JB, and the fellas, and Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. But we'll also get a halftime. And thankfully, that includes J-Lo and Shakira. But it could also include Trump. So Trump's been pretty smart about which games he shows up at. And he might decide to skip this one. Because the Super Bowl, especially if the 49ers are playing Nancy Pelosi's team at a game in Miami, he might get some booze. So he might sit this one out. And he might choose to do something else. An interview from the White House. He can get a massive interview before a massive audience at a really important time with a generally friendly audience. He can send in the tape and pretend to watch the game from his bathrobe as he rage tweets about impeachment and eats a stack of Big Macs. But watch this space. The Super Bowl is very much in play when it comes to politics. And watch next week, because it's down to four. It's the Chiefs hosting the Titans on Sunday, which should be a fantastic matchup with the Chiefs at home against Arrowhead, hoping they can finally do it with Patrick Mahomes, up against Derrick Henry and the Titans that believe they can do anything. And on the NFC side, in the late game, it's the 49ers and all these young stars up against the Packers and Aaron Rodgers. Should be a great clash. It's the playoffs, people. What's that? Playoffs? Don't talk about it. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? Yes, you gotta love the playoffs. And that includes not just the pros, but also college. And what an end it was to an amazing college football season that now, after so many decades, finally has a playoff system that we all grew up hoping for. LSU played Clemson in Louisiana. It was an epic matchup of two of the greatest quarterbacks in college history, maybe the best college quarterbacks we'll ever see. And since sports and politics are inseparable, Trump was there. And this is what it sounded like. Joined by the President of the United States and the First Lady. Not too many, if any, booze. Now, showing up at this national championship was a pretty safe bet for Trump politically, given that the fan bases were from South Carolina and Louisiana, and it wouldn't be the same reaction if he went outside the Superdome in New Orleans or at the 49ers game next week in California. But the game just kept coming. It was a shootout between two incredible young quarterbacks, Joe Burrow for LSU and Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. The pace was intense, so good. And so was the winning coach. If you don't know LSU coach Ed Orgeron, he's going to be making the rounds in the national media for the next couple of weeks, and he might be exactly what America needs right now. I love this guy and all that he and Joe Burrow have accomplished. And if you've never heard him, he's amazing. And he has one of the best voices you'll ever hear. Check this out. I just thank God for the opportunity I'm proud of. You know, I'm smart enough to know that I've been surrounded by great players and great university and great coaches. 
And without them, I wouldn't be sitting here. It took right. all of us together. A lot of the pieces fall into place. Uh, one team, one heartbeat. Everybody has a great role in our championship team. That's Coach O with Scott Van Pelt on ESPN. And if you don't know him and love him, you will. And playoffs are not just about Marshawn Lynch's chicken. It's apparently also about other foods as well. From now until the, you meet with your coaching staff, how do you spend this time with your family and friends? You know, we're going to go back to it. We got a nice suite. I got, I got Kelly and my three boys with me. Uh-huh. We're probably going to get a ham sandwich or maybe some boot down or something, go to bed and wake up tomorrow and do it again. <laughs> Come on, Coach. A ham sandwich? You just won the national title. I haven't lost in two years, for yeah. God's sakes. You got to at least find a gas station yeah. that's got some chicken on a stick. Some, give me something, man. You yeah, got, you hey, can... we may find that, uh, but it would be good. But we just simple folks. We love our life. I love my family. Uh, my personal time with them is going to be uh, we don't go out. We don't do things like that. I got and, you. Uh, we represent the state of Louisiana, so we, we're excited. And we're excited for you, Coach, and all you represent. And he represents what's best about coaching, about the playoffs, and about America. As I shared earlier, every big game needs a strong referee, a cool play-by-play and color person. And so does America. And in this episode... We've got one of the best there is, and he's from my hometown, and he represents our city and our country better than just about anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero. But I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra. And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Every guest on this show has shaped America's past, is impacting America's present, and is driving America's future. And our guest in this episode is no exception. As we explore the great American experiment, Errol Lewis is a man who understands, teaches, and leads all of it. Most of all, by his example. He's a powerful, honest, trusted voice of the people. The people of New York, but also the people of America. And he's one of the most influential political figures in the entire country. He's the iconic host of Inside City Hall, a nightly primetime news show that focuses on New York City politics. But he's also the conscience, a voice of reason, and a guy who takes no shit. He's a guy I wish would run for mayor himself, and we'll talk about that. He's also a contributor at CNN and an adjunct professor of urban reporting at the City of New York Graduate School of Journalism. He's also a longtime columnist, an editorial board member for the Daily News, and an accomplished radio show host. But he's also a dad, a husband, and himself a great American success story. Errol started out with extremely humble roots, growing up in the projects in West Harlem as the son of a cop. And he would rise from that tough childhood to get a bachelor's degree from Harvard, a master's from Yale, and a law degree from Brooklyn Law, and to interviewing mayors, from the projects to the spotlight of national politics, interviewing heads of state and presidents of the United States. Every one of our guests is important, iconic, and or inspiring, and Errol Lewis is all three. And he's the perfect guest for this moment in time to help us break down the political playoff unfolding all around us. And even more, he helps us break down not just politics, but how to be successful, how to live a good life, and how to do things the right way, a way our grandparents and our kids can be proud of. When the Yankees are winning in New York, All the world watches. And right now, all of America and all of the world is watching the 2020 race unfold in the critical next few weeks in New York City and 
nationwide. In Iowa, at the caucuses, and at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, in the New Hampshire primary, and at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, and soon on Super Tuesday, in a general election nationwide, and at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami. The Super Bowl of football is coming soon, and the Super Bowl for America will be coming quickly right behind it. By the time Super Bowl 55 rolls around next year in Tampa, we'll have had an inauguration. Either a first one for a new 46th president of the United States, or a repeat champion, and the second inauguration of Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States. The stages are getting bigger. The crowds are getting louder. The stakes are getting higher. The playoffs are here. And in this conversation, and in this episode, we will, of course, bring the four eyes. It's a pounding Derrick Henry run of integrity. Hand to Henry. Henry handles the contact. And there goes Derrick Henry. Henry has got major speed for a big man. And he takes it inside the 10. It's a dynamic Patrick Mahomes scrambling strike of information. Mahomes holding into the pocket, scrambling to the right side. Still scrambling. Yeah, he throws it late. He's throwing for Tyreek Hill. He's got the catch. He's at the 20, at the 25-yard line. Now inside the 15 and out of bounds, down at the Raven 12. Unreal. Mahomes scrambling to the right side and threw across his body on fourth down and nine for 48 yards. It's an Aaron Rodgers deep bomb pass of impact. Rodgers is going to roll away, throws it up in the air, says a prayer. And it's an unstoppable George Kittle touchdown of inspiration. Pass is caught. Kittle breaks one tackle. Another. Wow, what a touchdown for George Kittle. He went through Deontay Thompson and then Buda Baker, and Kittle was not going to be denied. We got all four quarters of the four eyes for you in this episode. The regular season's over. The stakes are getting higher by the minute. Well, welcome to the playoffs. <laughs> it's playoff season in America, in football, and in politics. It's time to find out who goes on and who goes home. It's time to find out who can handle the pressure and who'll fumble the ball on the five-yard line. It's time to find out who can call the right play and who can't. It's time to find out who the real leaders are and who really knows how to win. It's time for kickoff, and we ready. Welcome to the playoffs. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 42. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, um, visitors and residents of New York City and Battery Park City, 
Welcome to Angry Americans and a very, very special conversation with the great Errol Lewis. Thank you. Thanks very much. It is really a pleasure and honor to have you here. Um, one week ago, you and I were on live TV as uh, American military bases were being bombed in Iraq. So this is a nice change. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And you've you've always been a good, uh, a, a great guest and a good sport, and uh, come out to help when on my show on New York One, we need somebody with some real expertise who's a real New Yorker who actually will show up on time. I try. In the military, if you're on time, you're five minutes late. There you go. So, um, but I think you know every every episode of my, of this show, I want to interview someone who is an important, iconic and or inspiring American, someone who has shaped what America was, what it is, and what it will be. And, and you're smack dab in the middle of all of it. And so many of us in New York, and I think increasingly around the country, look to you to be a, a voice of wisdom and a voice of clarity. But taking a step back, tonight is the debate in Iowa. Yes. You just finished a show. What's a day like for Errol Lewis? Oh, boy. Um, like, like many other parents, um, I'm up to get my kid uh, out the door. And um, we walk over to the bus stop. It's pretty much the only time I'm guaranteed to have with him alone every day. Um, so that's, that's a very nice part of the day. Um, from 7 to 9, if I'm really on my game, I'm doing some writing or I'm doing some, some other kind of stuff. Uh, we have our first show meeting at 10 a.m. just to check in, see what's going on in the world, presumably I've read all my papers and am up on things by then. Uh, and, you know, at, at that point, the day takes shape. But uh, my TV show, Inside City Hall, it, a part of it is taped, but most of it is live at 7 p.m. So everything is kind of building up to 7 p.m. Everything kind of works backwards from that. Um, I have a few hours to do things like you know, laundry and the, you know, go into the store. I do our food shopping for my house, um, get to the gym if I'm lucky, that sort of a thing. My wife usually works from home, so we have lunch uh, together a lot of the time. Uh, but sooner or later, you know, you got to get to work. And um, starting in the early afternoon, we start really putting shape to things. I'm almost always working on preparation for something else. As you know, I have a, a handful of jobs. So I have the TV show every day. But I have a, a newspaper column that comes out in the Daily News every Thursday. So in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, OK, what's the next column going to be? Um, I have a podcast called You Decide, which comes out every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and there's usually some need to talk with producers and make sure we've got uh, all of that together. Some of it, we take elements from the show, but mostly we don't. Um, so there's always something to do. Next semester, or I should say starting in a few weeks, I'll be teaching. I teach once a year at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Um, and uh, that's something I've been doing for the last nine years. And that always takes some work when there are, are kids who are turning in stories and looking for guidance. And so, so there's always, you know, that kind of stuff goes on. But then pretty much around four o'clock, five o'clock, it's just the show. And there's always preparation for the show. My rule of thumb is, it's, I've just noticed it over the years, that I'm putting in about five or ten minutes worth of preparation for every minute that's on the air. So a typical interview, like the one that you came in to do with me, I think we were on for about 12 minutes. Um, that's, you know, that's a little over an hour's worth of prep, you know, bare minimum. 
you know, read about it. What are we, you know, what are we doing? What's the latest? What are the arguments? What is the guest? What has the guest said or written? What are, what are the, the important elements to get to, you know, and the, the point of all of it is to make it look kind of easy. Like you just wandered in off the street and we're like, Oh, Hey, Paul's here. Let's talk about what's going on in the middle East. Uh, when in reality, you know, I was taught by one of my um, mentors, the only spontaneity we want is planned spontaneity. Mm. You know, we want it to look easy. We want it to look natural. We want it to look like, you know, you just happen to be sitting around reading about, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy. But the reality is that's, that's the essence of the work. Now, you grew up in Nourishell. Yes. Just outside the city. Yep. And went to Harvard. Where did you start your journalism career or your journalistic aspirations at Harvard or where did that come from? How did you, how and when did you decide this is what you wanted to do with your life? A a little bit of an arc. We actually started out in uh, the projects in West Harlem in the Manhattanville projects. My dad was an NYPD officer and um, we moved to New Rochelle when I was in second grade. And so I think of that as where I grew up, but it is part of our family story and my memory that, you know, we lived in a very different place before we got to the suburbs. Um, I, I went to uh, college. I went to Harvard thinking I was going to do some writing. I didn't know that political science even existed until I was halfway through the interview process. And I was like, oh, I could just deal with the politics. That's great. I was going to be an English major or something just so I'd have an excuse to write about something. And I knew I was going to write about politics. Uh, and then to find out that they had... Uh, a newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, which is separate from the university, is well endowed, has its own building, its own printing press, and a, a storied history. Past editors at the paper include, you know, FDR and, you know, John F. Kennedy and, and people like that, uh, as well as, you know, most of the masthead of the New York Times in any given year. Uh, and so it was, it was the natural place to go. And it's older kids train younger kids. It is still, you know, one of the parts of the magic of journalism is that you don't need a license. You know, you don't need a degree. There is no journalism major at Harvard, for example. You just go and you put in enough time. And if somebody pays you to write a news story, then you're a journalist. And um, the older kids would would teach the younger kids. So I worked with uh, Paul Engelmeyer, who's now a federal judge, and Jeffrey Tubin, who you know from CNN. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Tubin's year included... Tubin, Nick Kristoff, and David Sanger. Um, you know, these, these are the kind of people who were hanging around the yeah, building. Lightweights. Yeah, lightweights. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, but we, we, were, we all learned this stuff together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I go back and look at old stories that I wrote. And even back then, this is the early 80s, I was solidly hooked on local stuff. And I go back and read stories. I can't even believe, I can't believe my name is on it. And it's like reading a foreign language where I'm covering the Cambridge City Council and the ins and outs of the, you know, the infighting between these, these local politicians. But that's really what I was always into. Now, we are at the Battery Park City Association, and I want to thank them again for hosting us today. And unlike at New York One, we can enjoy a mocktail. <laughs> uh, we are enjoying a mocktail, but I usually ask our guests as one of the first questions so we can get to know you. What is your, your cocktail or adult beverage of choice, Errol Lewis? Yeah, you know, I, I, I know that you do that. And I was thinking, does it say anything essential? Because I think of it as a seasonal question, right? I mean, if this was July, I'd say gin and tonic, right? But it's not July. So I'm in, uh, I'm in um, whiskey sour season. And whiskey sour is what I would reach for if we were at a bar right now. 
this is why I'm always glad I asked that question. <laughs> I, I never would have would, could have imagined what you have chosen, but that's not what it would have picked. <laughs> and it's, it's it's a fantastic fantastic choice. Yeah, especially I mean, it, it, and hopefully at a nice bar where they actually use egg whites for the sour mix. You know, like the, the good stuff. So another question we ask of all our guests: When you were growing up um, in the city and in New Rochelle, Errol Lewis, what was your first car? Ah. Uh, my first car was when I got out of college because I never had a car, and I was I'm the old, the old I was at the younger end of my age cohort, so other kids drove me around when I was in high school because I wasn't I was nowhere near the, the right age. But um, my first car was a Hyundai in 1986. It was the first year they started selling Hyundais in America. It was new enough that. If you saw somebody else in a Hyundai, you would honk and wave at them. <laughs> um, uh, I had the very first Hyundai. It was a stick shift. I don't even think they make them anymore. And uh, I smashed it up pretty good on um, I-95 North, right outside of Greenwich. Um, had it rebuilt and um, drove it into the ground. It was the wow. greatest car I ever had. I, I, I still wish I had a stick shift. And what color was it? It was blue. You can't find them anymore. What kind of a blue? Um, I, I would, I guess you would call it like a cobalt blue. It was kind of a darkish blue, you know, a little, a little lighter than what you've got on. You're, you're wearing Navy. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was a sturdy car, man. Got me where I needed to go. And I, I look, when I got out of college, I came, to, I came to Crown Heights. It was a, a house that my father had bought in the 1950s. The last tenants had moved out. There were literally crack vials on the steps, and I sweat the crack vial. It's a broken window. I got the window repaired. Cats were living in the house. I had to chase the cats out. It was the greatest, greatest thing in the world to have, like, a place to stay in New York City. Horrendous crime. Horrendous, horrendous crime. This is 1985. But I had a car and a press pass. And, you know, I, and, and a computer. And I had the world at my feet. You know, I mean, it was, it was, the, it was, it was I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And you were on the radio and you were uh, an editor at The Sun. Well, met, this, on the editorial board at, at The Sun later, the, fast forward, right? I, well, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a fast forward. Very I mean, fast when forward. I, when I first got out of college, I, I turned down an offer from the Wall Street Journal and went to work for like a community rag on Geralaman Street in Brooklyn because I wanted to cover the city, not, you know, the world of finance. Um, the, the New York Sun started in 2002, and I had something in the first edition. The editor was uh, Seth Lipsky, who was a, a personal friend and a mentor. He'd help, actually helped me get a summer internship um, long before in the 1980s um, at the Wall Street Journal, as a matter of fact. And um, he was, at the time, he was the foreign editor of the, of the Wall Street Journal. And... Um, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience. It was a conservative newspaper. Uh, I was writing editorials. I was writing columns. I was writing news stories, sat in on editorial board meetings. That's where I met my now wife. Um, it was a great, great experience. And some, somebody at some point is going to write the story of all the people who came through the New York Sun. There's a, a vast number of really talented, very successful journalists who all kind of came through there. It's um, Seth Lipsky's um, superpower is um, finding and nurturing talent in the, in the field. And there are a number of reasons why I'm excited to talk to you now, Errol. But um, I think as I've watched the 2020 race unfold, New York has almost become a default primary state in that the media 
center here, the finance center here, how many candidates come here to raise money. But there are also interesting personal connections to so many of the different candidates. Cory Booker is from just across the river. Kristen Gillibrand was running. Andrew Yang is from New York. Bernie Sanders was born in Brooklyn. Trump, of course, is from New York. There are probably others I'm, I'm missing. That's right. But the candidates might spend as much time here as in any other primary state. Well, that's right. I mean, and it's, you know, t- partly through happenstance, like the coincidences that you're describing, but also because they come through here a lot just to pick up money, right? It's, it's the fundraising capital. You know, every year somebody does a story on the top zip codes for donors to the various major candidates. And, you know, two or three of those zip codes are he- here in Manhattan. Um they know and rely on and use the city like an ATM, uh, but also because of where we fall. We're falling in the middle of sort of late April, and under the new rules, especially after what happened in 2016, the race will almost certainly not be decided on the Democratic side. Who the, the Democratic nominee will be, I expect it to be, there'll probably be a favorite but the outcome will not be a foregone conclusion by April. Meaning, which and the good news is that means all of us who are Democrats get to really sort of participate. Um, and it, it was it was true four years ago in a big, big way when Bernie Sanders was essentially making his last stand in New York, which for a Brooklyn boy made sense. Um, and Hillary Clinton, who had her own has her own ties, to, of course, to New York and had represented the state. Um, put up a ferocious battle, but it was really interesting and kind of nice to be in contention. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been on the campaign trail. When you go to Iowa, you go to New Hampshire. It's just, I mean, it's outrageous. The, the, they are so spoiled. They expect every single candidate to come, not to the state, but to come to their library, their town, their diner, walk over to them. They're not going to get up and walk across the diner. The candidate needs to come over and shake their hand and tell them something. Um, New Yorkers, you know, we've never gotten that kind of treatment, but it was nice to have candidates crisscrossing the state, even on the Republican side. John Kasich came here. Remember, he went up to Arthur Avenue, yeah. was shoveling food in his mouth as fast as he could, <laughs> trying to do, you know, what he could to pick up some delegates. And you moderated the debate? Did you? I, I, was, a, I was a questioner ago, right? in, in April of 2016 in the final debate between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. That was an epic clash at it the was, time. It was unbelievable. Can you take us inside that oh, night dude, you have and no what idea. that was like for you? Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, first of all. And you got to keep in mind, I've been duly, I've been moderating debates of one kind or another for every low level, you know, I mean, you know, assembly and city council and congressional races. I've probably done well over 100 at this point. And, you know, if you if you remember uh, the early part or of the of the movie Gladiator, right, where he's out in the provinces and these these horrible little sand pits, you know, fighting, (laughs) fighting people to the death. And then he comes to Rome. This was like coming to Rome, you know, Uh, and, and the big surprise was it was a lot like those those scraps in church basements that I'd been dealing with for the previous 20 years. It was a loud, raucous, um, you know, you could see that Clinton and Sanders were getting on each other's nerves. The the dislike was genuine at that point, I would say. The stakes were fairly high. The room was very noisy. I felt right at home. It was a great debate. It was a great debate. So I had the unique opportunity to host and help create the Commander-in-Chief Forum 
during that same oh, that time awesome. period, right? That was awesome. So yeah. we had uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump together on the Intrepid the week before 9-11 in New York to focus on national security and veterans issues. And I got a crash course on all of it. I mean, on, on, you know, they, they couldn't be in the same room. Right. Who was on the ship at what? And it was literally a ship, which made it that much more complicated and interesting. <laughs> but, but that was a fascinating um, a planning process yes. to see how it was kind of a four-sided uh, discussion and planning process between us, Iraq and Afghanistan, Veterans America was the host. Then we had NBC, which was broadcasting then each of the campaigns. Right. And for example, moderators could be rejected or accepted. Formats could be rejected and accepted. And that unfolded and it ended up being the first time and the last time they were together before the first debate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I, I share that in part because uh, I wish I had more influence in the end over how that unfolded. You know, I feel I mean, the same way. Right. The, the, there, there were questions you wanted to ask that, that never well, got asked. And right? even, for example, a controversial issue became that Gary Johnson was not included. Yeah. And I caught a lot of shit. We caught a lot of shit for, for, for excluding Gary Johnson from the stage. We didn't exclude Gary Johnson. NBC did. Right. And right. the candidates did. They all, oh, you know, NBC said Gary Johnson's going to kill ratings. Right. And neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton wanted, wanted Gary Johnson on stage. We were actually one, the only one of that quadrant because uh-huh. he had a, some following in the military and veterans community that pushed for an independent candidate and others to be involved. But right. this takes me to a question, which is, Errol, you know, we're watching these debates. There's going to be a few more in the next couple of weeks. Iowa's right around the corner. If you were designing a debate, mm. In the best interest of the public, mm. and you are someone that I think always has the public interest in mind, and I watched probably half of the, at least half of the debates that you did moderate, the ones in Staten Island and all the others, mm-hmm. but if you were to craft it in the best interest of the public, what would you do? How would you have it? Wow. I, w- I would consider something radical, like uh, a few years ago in the race for uh, president of France, uh, we got to look at how they do it, and it was just the two candidates. There's no moderator, and they just kind of sat face-to-face at a table, and they kind of went at it for, you know, a couple of hours, right? I mean, that's, that's real talk. Um, if, it, if it were up to me, um, we'd, we'd make it long, not open-ended, but long. You know, we did a debate for public advocate, which whatever else you want to say about it, it's not a very powerful position. It can be consequential. It can be meaningful. We, we put on a two-hour debate. You know, we just thought it was the right thing to do. There were a lot of candidates that night. And we said, well, let's, let's go until it's done. We've had producers at a fairly high level um, kill commercials and let us run over the time because we were in the middle of something and it was important. So if, if it were up to me, um, we'd have a good, a good civic panel of journalists and also some outside civic groups. And we'd, we'd design a format that was going to make sure that there were not questions designed to hit a headline the next day, but were designed to touch on important issues, a good wide range of important issues, and most importantly, give people time to answer the questions. It's, right. my, it's my pet peeve when, you know, you, you tell people, you know, look, time, you, you, you're, you're like a sculpture. You're like a sculptor. And time is the block of granite, right? So you, you've got to work backwards. You've got a two-hour debate. You've got X number of, you know, every question and answer is going to take about four minutes. If there are rebuttals, it might take five. It might take six. And, you, you know, you just kind of work it through. So then, then if the question then is, what 12 questions can we ask the next president of the United States or ask in such a way that we're going to determine the next president of the United States, you better pick the right 12 questions. 
not silly stuff, not, you know, do you want to have a dog or a cat in the White House, you know, or not, not um, some obscure feud that happened to be in that news cycle so that you can make sure you're ahead of your news rivals the next day. Both of those things are trivial. What they should really be trying to do is, so that's what I would do. Yeah. I would also give, give the, the, the public some advanced sense, you know, like, I don't see what's wrong with distributing some of your briefing book. You know, before every major debate, I'm, you may have seen it at CNN, they give you this big, thick book, all of this background on all of the candidates and tons of polling and demographic data and electoral history of the area that you're talking about and so forth. You should give this to the public. You should give this to the public. Like, let's, let's treat people like adults. Let's try and get everybody educated. You can take a little, you can take a lot of information. And then let's let's treat this like the serious business that it is. That's what that's what I would do. And keep or eliminate live audiences because I've seen some debates where you're, you know, you you look like you're at the Roman Coliseum trying to keep people out of the ring. <laughs> you're um, referring to the general. Uh, you're referring to the general election debate from mayor in 2017. I am when yeah. I had to cut off the microphone of Bo Deedle. And I had an audience member thrown out. That was the only time I had to do that. I turned around and pointed to somebody and asked them to like just take the guy. But out. would you? But but serious <laughs> but question. I, I, I would like, you limit? Because I, I find that no. the audience can be disruptive, but also can skew you know the, for the 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 perception of support for folks who stack the room or don't stock the room. Right? I mean, theoretically, Tom Steyer could buy up half the audience now and fill it with well. His there, fans. Are, there are ways around that. I mean, normally you give equal numbers of tickets to all right, of the candidates right. and then you'll kind of leave it up to them. But you would keep them. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would. I mean, look, I, you know, we don't want it to be too buttoned down. Right. I mean, you want to let the animal off the chain a little bit, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, it's not a church picnic. It's a power struggle. Right. I mean, it's, it, and if, if, People say something outrageous, the audience reacts. Sure. Um, you know, as a media producer, you know, you, you can, I mean, I, I try to, I've tried to explain this to disruptive audiences all the time. It's like, if you get up and disrupt it, no one is going to hear it. We will not let that go out over the air. First of all, it won't get picked up by the microphone. And even if it did, we're on a delay. So, you know, your, your great moment will never be seen. There's no point. Um, so with, with that as a backstop, Sure, let people come and cheer and boo. And, you know, as moderator, my job has been to, like, let's keep it to a minimum. Let's keep it reasonable. If somebody tells a joke, yes, it's okay for people to laugh. Um, I've, I've, done, I've done debates both ways, and I like the, the human energy in the room. G- given your expertise uh, and your experience in watching Donald Trump among the Democratic candidates, who do you feel is best positioned to face, uh, face him in the debate? Who who is the well, best opposition for him? I in the I, debate. I, I, I'm tempted to just say none of them. You know, I mean, if that's the criteria, if the criteria is, can you stop Donald Trump from doing what Donald Trump does when yeah. he's at the podium? You can't. You can't. Um, you can't. I, I I just you know he's he's going to do what he's going to do. I mean, if you're you know look, you, this is we've we've seen this in action movies our whole lives, right? The good guy is going to sort of play by the rules, right? He's not going to shoot the hostages. He's not going to blow up the whole arena. You know, he's going to try and salvage certain things. And that, of course, is used against him because the bad guy doesn't really care. Bad guy will shoot the hostage at the start of the of the proceedings just to let everybody know. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump, if you if you are a candidate 
who's going to confine themselves to factual statements, um, not using uh, racist epithets like Pocahontas. If you want to have a, a responsible policy that you can actually implement, as opposed to saying we're going to, you know, we're going to give everybody everything, no pre pre existing conditions, you know, that kind of thing. You you are you are fatally disadvantaged if if the question is can you win this debate? Fortunately, it's not about a debate; it's about winning the election. That's a different kind of a task. But um, I think whoever the nominee is should expect a really really rough time on stage with Donald Trump. You have you know been surrounded by Donald Trump most of your professional career in some way, shape, or form. For folks who are listening from outside of New York and maybe outside of America, can you share your analysis <laughs> of the phenomenon that is Donald Trump? And what should yeah. they know, you know as a political watcher? You're, you're yeah. maybe the expert, well, among look, all I, others, I, I in think, his ascension over the last few years. Your, I, your thoughts on that? I, th- I think it's important that people remember. When I, when I think of him, I think of him as a game show host. I don't think of him as... A developer. He was a developer early in his career. He left that behind a long time ago. Um, he, when he went to Hollywood, he became closer to the Donald Trump that we see today. And that Donald Trump is a performer. And he is a game show host. I mean, you know, the whole thing about The Apprentice is he sets people against each other. He, you know, kind of undermines people and creates conflict and floats above it as, the, as the, the arbiter and the dictator of it. And in the end, he says, this one wins, this one loses, according to whatever criteria, including illegitimate criteria, that he, you know, sometimes it's a whim. I remember seeing one episode of The Apprentice where he, he fired everybody. He says, you're all fired, you know. And it was, it was actually very funny. Um, it's kind of so, like half his cabinet in the last few yeah, years. Yeah, well, there you yeah. go, right? So, so I mean, that's, that's closer to who he is. Um, you know, and it's it's it is a decision that we made as a country. You know, I mean, I'll I, I buy into it like everything else. You know, the the process was reasonably fair, and this is what we decided. We decided we wanted something that was a radical break with the past. Out of you know, forty four prior presidents, every one of them had served in government in some capacity or in the military, um, and this was somebody who had never done any of that. Um, all of the others had sort of a track record that you could look at, and that wasn't true here. There was a business track record, but it was a very, very troubled and spotty one. And then there was the sort of uh, the surface illusions, the, the, you know, the sort of uh, the smoke and mirrors of the Hollywood game show host. And that's what people decided the, the country needed. Um, a lot of people felt otherwise. I think we're now seeing a lot of the consequences of that choice, but um, I think what people outside of New York should know is that New Yorkers always knew that this was an act, that the things that Donald Trump purported to have done, he either didn't do or he didn't do it in the way that he described it. You know, things like Trump University came as no surprise to anybody in New York. Um, things like the multiple bankruptcies, you know, the, 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 the Trump princess, this big yacht he used to have docked on the east side. We knew when he bought it, he couldn't afford that thing. Um, the, the, the Taj Mahal, the, you know, the bankrupt casinos, it was all detailed in depth. My favorite story, and I wrote a column about it, which I don't wouldn't normally do, but I wrote a column telling everybody, read this thing in 
uh, Bloomberg News, they took 40, 40 Wall Street, formerly owned by, you know, right. Ferdinand Marcos, but ended up in the hands of Donald Trump, the Trump Organization. They did a, a, this wonderful graphic, and you could click on different suites within it. All of the boiler rooms, the fraud operations, the indictments, the, uh, the people who absconded with other people's money, who went to that building just so they could have a Wall Street address, and it helped them with their fraud. And it was, it was astounding that this is what was going on. And this was, you know, this was in 2016. It was put out there for the public. You know, I, I, I accept almost every criticism anybody ever has of the media, but when they say, you didn't tell us about Trump, I kind of draw the line there. It's like, no, 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 no. We told you everything about Trump. <laughs> um, did you ever I, interview him, Errol? I did. It was my first field interview. I started at New York One, my first television job, in uh, December of 2010. I went on the air. And in April of uh, 2011, they said, you got to go do a field interview. Go to, you know, 725 Fifth Avenue. You're going to interview Donald Trump. He was talking at the time about running for president. And I was, you know, it's like, okay, sure. Well, I've never been there. You know, I'd never been in Trump Tower. And um, we, go, we go up there, and I'm waiting for him. And, and they have you in this waiting room, and it has all of these different little projects. It reminded me of, you know, in the movie Nakatomi Plaza, right? There's all of, these, all of these different hotels that have his name and resorts and stuff. And, you know, like I told you, you always, you always do your homework. So I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you didn't build that. You didn't build that. This is a licensing deal. You know, these are some Korean builders who let you put their name on it. And, you know, anyway, so he comes out and, uh, and we, we start talking and I do my usual thing. I want to ask about this. I want to ask about that. He gave me answers that the, the rest of the world has now come to be used to where I'd ask him. So, well, you know, Mr. Trump, you don't have any foreign policy experience. What would you do about, you know, problems in the Middle East, or trade relations. I didn't ask about trade, actually. And he said, I would be very strong on immigration. And then he sat back. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, that's the whole answer? <laughs> you know? And, and, and that was the whole answer. I would be very strong on immigration. <clears throat> okay. Um, and, and it went like that for about five minutes. And then I say to myself, this is not going anywhere. This, this is not somebody who knows anything about the kind of questions that I want to ask him. So we made it a lot more lighthearted. At that point, and I asked him at the time there was something going on with Charlie Sheen and stuff like that. And I said, Why don't you put Charlie Sheen on The Apprentice? It, it became kind of jokey. Um, and I, I, you know, one, one interesting part about it, I asked him about money. That's one of my sort of just personal rules. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever in a room with a billionaire, I figure, you know, it would be a waste not to ask them about money, <laughs> even if it's at a level of like, you know, can I borrow 20 bucks? You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the many reasons why people love you. You're kind of the people's champion. When you're in the ring, hey. man, we're rooting for you to ask the questions that we would ask. Well, no, I mean, I'm trying to do the interview. You, yeah. you got to connect with people, right. right? So it's like, I'm not going to ask you about your licensing deals because right. that's bullshit. Right. Um, I'm trying to talk to you about government. You're saying you're going to be strong on immigration and then you sit back. So I'm trying to find something. So, so uh, yeah, I asked him a money question. And, you know, I was, you know, was kind of like, um, you know, we all have to deal with our 401ks and things like that. I was like, how do you figure out what to do with, you know, with your cash? And he actually gave an interesting answer. He said, you know, he says, I actually do it myself. I don't use financial advisors. And he, he gave me an interesting story, a little anecdote about in, down there in that Palm Beach circles among all the, the rich people was Bernie Madoff. And that was his hunting ground. That's, that's where he fleeced most of the people that he, he stole from. And um, Trump said he met him and he said to the guy, uh, you know, I don't need your help. 
I can lose money all by myself, which was true. <laughs> You're very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I thought it was an interesting answer. And I, and I take him at his word. And I was like, okay, it is interesting. A guy like this who, you know, he may not be as rich as he says, but he's pretty damn rich. And he's got a lot of things going on all over the world, but he chooses to invest his money himself. I thought that was kind of interesting. Definitely. And, and so New York has become a launch pad for him and become a launch pad for people in politics since as long as New York's been around. Um, the one person that we didn't mention in the earlier uh, roster was Mike Bloomberg. So Bloomberg's now in the race. Uh, I think his impact is starting to be felt more than before uh, in ways big and small, ranging from Judge Judy to $10 million Super Bowl ad buys. Yeah. But um, when I was coming to visit your show, Mayor Nutter was back in the green room, who's now, I think, his finance chair or political chair. National political chair. National political chair. And uh, one of the things that I asked him that I can't seem to get a straight answer on is Bloomberg has said repeatedly his goal is to beat Trump. And then he talks about getting elected. And what I've seen about Bloomberg is that he runs the numbers and he has a strategy and executes against it, knowing the probabilities. Yes. And now over the last few weeks, it seems more and more apparent that 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 primary goal is actually his goal. He said that if he loses and doesn't get the nomination, he'll farm out his staff to other staffs. Um, And in many ways, he's maybe the big gun that Democrats have been shitting on in so many ways. He's kind of become less popular in the Democratic Party than anybody maybe except Tulsi Gabbard. Um, But I think now people are starting to see, as always, Bloomberg has a plan. As always, Bloomberg has a plan. As always. so, So what do you think the influence of Mike Bloomberg is and will be? On the 2020 election. Well, look, the, the first thing is that by by declaring that he first of all, he has like 800 people on staff now. And I don't think they're done hiring quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, he let it be known that they're all going to have jobs and they're all going to be working on the political campaign of one type or another through November. That buys what we saw Bloomberg buy when he was mayor of New York, which is silence. Right. Nobody is going to go at him too hard, at least not at this phase, not for the foreseeable future. Why? Do you want 800 people working against you? If you're some candidate, you haven't even figured out how you're going to get to Trump at this point. You want an army of 800 coming after you and somebody who has literally, for our purposes, unlimited funds to spend. He's already spent, what, $200 million, more than all of the other candidates combined. Nothing like this has ever happened before. So, He's going to, you know, he won't, he won't get a, he won't get attacked. Um, he, he has a plan. It involves skipping the first four contests. I think that that's a very risky strategy. And if, if he's going to have a serious stumbling block, I think it will be that. Um, he's buying ads and setting up organizations like crazy in all of the Super Tuesday states in Texas, in California, in North Carolina, and all of these other places that don't go to the polls until uh, March 3rd. Um, I suspect what he's going to run into is that after Iowa, there will be a media roar of the kind that we all remember. I was in Iowa the night that uh, Obama won in 2008. He was about as far away as that window. I was just kind of standing there. And then 10 days later, it was South Carolina, and I was like, you know, they had bomb-sniffing dogs, and, you know, it was a whole other thing. I mean, but I remember in Iowa, they, I, you know, they said, oh, you know, what do you want? I'm with the press. Okay, press, go sit over there. 
And I was like right over there and watched him give his speech. And so, right. anyway, in, in any event, the, the world changes is my point. The world changes entirely politically. Um, and Bloomberg has a lot of money. The question for me, it's an open question. You know, nobody knows the answer to this, including Mike Bloomberg. Does he have enough money and organization to counter the media roar that Fox and MSNBC and CNN and every local paper and every local station, they're all going to be talking about who won Iowa. And then a few days later, they're going to be talking about who won New Hampshire. And if either or both of those happen to be Joe Biden, Joe Biden, I think, is on his way to the nomination. Um, Somebody's going to win in South Carolina. It will continue that, you know. So, you know, will there still be a story out there, will there still be an opportunity for Mike Bloomberg to sort of intervene and scoop up a bunch of delegates in March? I don't know, but he's definitely going to be a factor. Yeah. And it could be that he's just stockpiling weaponry, political weaponry, to achieve the ultimate goal, which might actually be just to knock out Trump. I right? think he, to, I to, think to, he does want to. Yeah, yeah. To, to yeah. stockpile in the same way he did philanthropically on issues like gun control. You know, he would kind of carpet bomb the the landscape and, you know, plant a thousand seeds and hope that a couple grow. And, and I think that that's increasingly what it seems like is he wants to bring really big firepower that he can either yield himself or hand off to others. Yes. In, in, in the pursuit of that ultimate goal of, of knocking him out and being a real annoyance to him. I mean, it's starting to it's starting to hit now. Right? Well, yes, like he's, yes. Trump's reaction yeah. is an indication. And now we've got a different kind of, uh, of escalation of force and that Bloomberg buys a Super Bowl ad, he buys a Super Bowl ad. If he, if he can drain his resources, that, that in and of itself could be a huge advantage to all those against Trump. Well, that, no, it's, it, well, it is interesting. Right. I call it the billionaire beef, you right. know, it, and it's, it's, it's funny as heck. You know, I mean, at, at the Democratic convention, it was an absolute scream to see Bloomberg on stage kind of playing the dozens on Donald Trump, you know, sort of saying, you know, he says he wants to run the country like he runs his businesses, God forbid, you know, and he went on and on and on. Um, You know, just recently, in fact, there was something on Twitter where somebody was talking about um, a battle between the two billionaires and Michael uh, Bloomberg tweets, who's the other one? You know, this is, (laughs) you know, billionaire shade, you know? Um, Uh, but but there but there is something to that. He's 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 look. He's got more liquid assets. Let's just let's be kind about it. We don't know because he won't release his taxes. We don't know what Donald Trump really owns. But what he does, we do know that much of his wealth is tied up in real estate deals. Whereas Bloomberg's just got a lot of cash, uh, and that can be converted into commercials and manpower and. Uh, uh, social media ads and all kinds of other stuff uh, instantly as we are now seeing. So this process, Errol, is, I think, extremely frustrating for many folks to watch unfold. For me, as a political independent, it's often been frustrating to watch the Democrats kind of eat their own. And we hope that there will be one day this Jon Snow moment from Game of Thrones where they all rally around one tribe and, and come together in opposition of the White Walker Night King, right? Um, but when you watch this this process unfold, there's plenty of reason to be angry. And I ask this of, of all our guests, whether it's political or not, Errol Lewis, what makes you angry? Uh, the, you know, look, the things, what makes me angry is when you see people abusing the public trust. You know, uh, I've covered a lot of corrupt politicians over the years. I have been at their indictments. I have been at their trials. I've been at their sentencing. 
Uh, and there's, it's an endless supply. I told you I've been teaching um, journalism for 10 years. Every year when it comes to the section on corruption, I'm teaching a course on how to cover government. I give them, I'm teaching them how to read an indictment. And I give them the latest indictment of whoever's been, in, you know, I've never had to repeat, right? I mean, there's, there's Sheldon Silver and there's Junior Boyland and there's Malcolm Smith and on and on and on and on. And it never changes. It's human nature. There's no reason to get overly upset about it in a way, you know, just like there are banks, there are going to be bank robbers. There's public money, there will be public corruption. But it, it, it always makes me furious because it's, you know, it's, they, they steal from people who really, really, really need help, you know? And, it, and it's, it, you know, we, you, you can't have a society like that. You just, you just can't, you know? And I have a lot of sympathy. I'm a good New York liberal, so I, I tend to have sympathy for the underdog, but not for those guys. Understanding the environment that Trump has created, I think you are one of the finest journalists in this country. Thank you. How do you feel about Trump calling you an enemy of the people? And what does it mean for our city, for our country, that we've got a president that continues to refer to people yeah. who I think have the public interest in mind like you, often includes veterans. who I've talked to J James Laporta on this show, who's an investigative reporter at Newsweek, a decorated Marine who covers people killed in action. Trump's talking about him, yeah, right? Trump's talking about you, but... How does that yeah. make you feel, and what does that mean for the larger macro issues we face in the country? It's, it's, it's really important. I mean, look, the, the, his attacks on the press fall into two categories. Some are um, sort of juvenile and sort of obvious. So, like, he attacked me on Twitter. So I was on the list that the New York Times published of people, places, and things that have been attacked by Trump. Showed it to my son. I was a big hero. It was great. <laughs> he, he, he called into CNN. He used to do this. I was on with, um, with uh, Chris Cuomo when he was doing the morning show, and Trump called in and starts attacking me by name. You know, Errol Lewis has been very unfair to me, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And that, that wasn't cool either, but I didn't really care. Um, enemy of the people is something else. And I, I just, look, I have a healthy, healthy respect for history and when history is looking you in the face and screaming to you, we have seen this before, you have to take it seriously. So, you know, all of the, there are any number of scholars and some journalists have sort of amplified the work where if there's an authoritarian checklist where democracies are sliding into authoritarianism, one of them is, you know, attacking the independent institutions that are supposed to speak for the people and provide facts and truth uh, in a democracy. And that's precisely what he's doing. It's extremely dangerous. It's extremely problematic. Um, I, you know, I also, though, as a, as a journalist, I recognize the limits of what I can convince people of. You know? So you know, th there are any number of instances in history where the, the truth was blaring and staring the public in their face, and the public either didn't notice or decided they didn't care. And a certain number of people in the public have decided they either refuse to notice or they don't care. And we just kind of have to live with that. We have to live with that. I, 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 overall, I am very confident in our institutions. I think, you know, the courts, the Congress, the people, you know, the elections, the media, 
I think my colleagues have done a great job. This um, ongoing newspaper war between the Walls—I mean, between uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post—is like a glory. I know. I mean, I'm saying this not just because I know a lot of the people and they're my friends, but it's a glorious moment in journalism. They're doing unbelievably, astoundingly good and important work. Uh, I trust that when the smoke settles, possibly in November, possibly sooner, possibly a little later possibly four years from now, when the dust settles, I think the country will go back to something closer to what we would have called normal before 2016. When the dust settles in 2020, we'll have a race for mayor here in New York City. Oh, it's on. It's already happening. And, and that has obviously national implications, maybe more than ever before. You, I think, continue to have de Blasio on every week yes. in a really unique format, something I wish we could get for the president. You know, every week... He comes from the gym or wherever he is and sits with you and gets hard questions. Um, But I think that's been a very important public service. But now the landscape is unfolding. Um, There is a a new landscape continuing to unfold where somebody like AOC, right, has has a national, international level um, visibility. Andrew Yang could decide after he drops out that he wants to run for mayor. Corey Johnson, so many others. Can Can you lay out your assessment of the current field? And sure. what do you think the mayoral race looks like next year? Right now, the top four, meaning the four that we know are running and have served in government long enough that you can expect that they're going to do this and they have opened accounts and so forth. Ruben Diaz Jr., the Bronx Borough President, uh, the city controller, Scott Stringer, uh, the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, and the Speaker of the City Council, Corey Johnson. There's a That's the core four. There are a handful of others who are talking about it. They're outside of government right now. Um, but one or two of them may in fact run, like somebody like the Andrew Yang, the wild cards. Um, of those four, they they have long track records. They all I've known all of them since they got elected since before they got elected. I've known three of the four bef- since before they got elected to any office. So it's kind of hard to talk about them without sort of, you know, thinking about their arc from, you know, owning a bar or working in the police department or whatever it was they were doing before. Um, I think we're going to be fine, but it has to be all of us. Like, cause you know, the, the instinct is to ask, well, what about these candidates? But that's sort of like um, the restaurant menu model where like, okay, here's, here's what the guy is offering you. And if you want to pick this, then you want this candidate. It doesn't really work that way. They are, um, they are blank slates to a certain extent, you know, and I've been telling activists and I would tell everyone in this room, everyone listening to your podcast, find these candidates and tell them what they should do if they get elected. Most of them care about like two or three things, maybe five, um, but everything else, they don't have a position on, you know, how to do seawall protection for Battery Park City. They've never thought about it. They don't know and they don't care. Uh, if you have a problem here with, you know, some imbalance between the seniors and the kids or the tourists who I, I hear keep wandering up here from Battery Park and making everybody's life miserable, they don't know anything. They don't know anything that you don't tell them. You have to tell them. And you have to tell them on, on, on topics that you would think they knew because some of them have been in government for a long time and you'd think they would know these things. They don't know. 
And, and, and that's okay, but we have to really educate them. So I, I turn into Professor Lewis when I'm interviewing these people, and I kind of tell them, it's yeah. like, this is going to be on the final exam. And, and Professor Lewis did not give us an answer to that question, really, <laughs> about the, the mayoral candidate. So I'll ask you very directly, Errol, would you ever run for mayor? I would have to be very, very rich and very, very bored, and I am neither. If you ran right now, I venture to say you would be polling at the top of that heap. Um, you know, and it's it's not outside the realm. You ran. You haven't you, you, you haven't you, seen my oh, hate mail. No, but but <laughs> look at Trump's hate mail. Hasn't stopped him. You ran for city council. You, I you did. Ran for city council. Nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Democratic candidate for city council in the thirty fifth district. Now represented by Lori Cumbo. Um, it was a great race. It was the most fun I ever had on a campaign. For anybody who's ever worked on a campaign, being the candidate is the best job. Um, it, I. I put my heart and soul into it. I left everything on the field. I had no backup plan because at the time I was young and stupid and psychologically thought I didn't need to have a backup. And so I was like jobless and car got repossessed. It was awful. Um, but but uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. And I want to and, and not for me. I discovered yeah. it was like, you know, this is not for me. <laughs> but I want you to tell the story. It was interesting that I read your transition from candidate to journalist. You you ranked third. And then had a unique responsibility with regard to the two candidates ahead of you later. Oh, wait, please. I came in second. Please. Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Correct me, please. I ran, I ran please, against, thank you. Against, I ran against Mary Pinkett. Nobody here under 50 knows who Mary Pinkett was, but she was the first African-American woman ever elected to the city council. She'd been there for 23 years. And I figured, well, we'll just, you know, move her out the way and, you know, proceed to a glorious destiny. Um, the voters thought otherwise. I came in second. The person who came in third was James Davis, who later became a close friend. And um, I was with his mother at the hospital after he was assassinated at City Hall. And that experience, more than anything else, finished that chapter for me, you know, because people said, oh, now you can run, you know, because he, he eventually went on and became the city council member. Term limits kicked in. Mary Pinkett retired. James Davis ran. And people came to me and said, oh, you know, now's your time. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I went to law school. He got assassinated inside City Hall by a political rival who wanted to run for the seat. And people were calling me like within a day or two. Oh, now's your chance. Now your chance. And, and I'm like, I actually drew the opposite conclusion, you know, <laughs> from, from this experience that I'm completely done. And Yes, it is. It's, it's macabre and it's, it's not funny at all. But I mean, what happens to be true is, you know, very few people in politics get the chance to write the obituary of their opponents, which I did in both the case of, Mary, of them, right? Mary Pinkett and James Davis, um, that 1997 race. Yeah. Every, everybody's gone from that race. My campaign manager passed away from back then. It's, mm. it's, it's dead and buried. It's over. But your candidacy may not be. The people would, would get behind Errol Lewis. If you, if you or Brian Lair you know. ran for mayor of New York, I think you'd see a tremendous groundswell of support. And I, I just ask that you consider it in, 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 on behalf of the people of New York City. There's definitely nobody who I've ever met who knows more about New York City well, you were, than you, you do. You were, you were very kind. You haven't met my wife. Um, which is where any such talk would start and end. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> um, there, you know, look, there, there are a lot of ways to contribute. And as, as I've told people, 
you know, because they say, oh, why don't you run for this or run for that? It's like, look, there's 51 members of the city council. There's only one host of mm. Inside City Hall, you know. It's so, true. Right? And, true. and, and which is important, uh, you know, in a way that um, I don't want to be cocky about it, but um, they come and they go and we stay. Right. You know, I mean, when we go to the Democratic convention in Milwaukee, it's going to be my ninth convention. Presidents come and go, you know, and we stay. And that's important for all of us, I think, to recognize that. That, um, you know, I was talking with, he's a wonderful guy. I get to interview him a couple of times a year when he's promoting a film. Um, but when Ken Burns came in last time I was talking to him, I asked him, like, what do you make of all of this stuff, this craziness, the impeachment and everything else? And he said, you know, the country's kind of lost its mind. You know, I mean, that's my words, not his. He said, you know, <laughs> FDR said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, you know, JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support, you know. And, and what his point was, you know, the guy who's an operator who can kind of go outside the lines and get away with it, it captured something in the American soul or spirit in such a way that a lot of people react to that. And, you know, over time, I tend to believe that we'll come to our senses, we'll put that aside, we'll reach for, you know, better, better things. You know, the notion that you put a clean glass of water in a dirty glass of water, sooner or later, the kid will figure out which one they should be drinking from. Hmm. You, you, your response there, Errol, is part of why people love you. You bring a tenacity and an optimism and a passion and a curiosity right, that, that kids growing up in this city um, bring, and, and if it's harnessed, they can go on to do great things. And you're a role model for so many of them, somebody who came up in the city and now has this tremendous platform that's doing good. Um, at its core, Errol Lewis, what makes you happy? Uh, um, I, I am actually, this is, this, work with me on this. What makes me happy, what I really, really like is talking with older people who are in and around government, politics, and journalism. They, to me, first of all, they're modeling kind of where I'm heading. So it's nice to see that you can sort of um, retire from this game in dignity and, and still be useful and interesting. But there is so much wisdom and so much passion and caring and experience just within the five boroughs. I mean, pe people out there, I mean, you know, we, we just had this big battle to close Rikers Island, the biggest, uh, the big jail, the big, the central jail for New York City. Uh, it's disgraceful, problematic on multiple, multiple levels. But there's this guy named Herb Sturz, who's often described as a, a, a sort of a civic treasure, which he is, who tried to do this in 1970. And he still shows up. I remember speaking at a conference and I'm looking out in the audience. There's Herb Sturr still showing up, trying to, you know, not, not um, browbeating people, not doing the, the crotchety old man thing about back when I was right, trying to do, right. but, but just there and available. That stuff makes me really, really um, satisfied. You know, him, um, David Jones, who runs the Community Service Society, Guys who have, you know, been around the sun a few times and have seen the city when it was falling apart. I just did an interview with um, 
Norman Steisel. He was the first deputy mayor under Dinkins, but he had also worked in the budget division under Lindsay. Um, the late Jay Kriegel passed away recently. He was a good friend. Um, I love those guys. I mean, they, they are a link to the past. They are um, sort of a, a path for the rest of us to sort of unlock and understand this confusing city. Absolute civic jewels. And um, I'm always happy to talk to them, including my dad, retired uh, inspector Edward Lewis. Great, great guy. And, you know, the war stories alone are worth hearing, but like a perspective on, on the world and on the city that has convinced me that, you know, in the end, yeah, I think we are going to be okay. You know, in part because these guys told me. You give us that hope. I think every day and every night, and I, I know the city is very proud of you, and I hope that this next year especially can elevate your profile even higher across this country because it's a voice that needs to be heard and a perspective that needs to be understood and felt. A final um, tradition we have on this show on Angry Americans is the giving of the gifts. So in a minute for folks in the room, we're going to take questions of Errol. Um, but um, we are very grateful for you. Oh. And I have a giving of the oh, gifts. Cool. There are three traditional gifts. Uh-huh. And here? the first are some American-made Angry Americans swag, some shirts. Oh, okay. So like when that. you're feeling like angry, that. you can put that shirt on. Made hey, by right. veterans at, at Oscar Mike. Okay. Cool. And then you can clap for them. Sure. I think everyone, I every, everyone loves veterans. And then the next, uh, the next item we've got, Errol, mm-hmm. is this. We started the show around Easter, and this is a question and a gift. Oh, boy. So every guest that we've ever had in the show is chosen. There are three colors of peeps. Pink, <laughs> pink, yellow, and blue. Which color would you choose, oh Errol, and why? God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I would choose, I will choose um, pink because I am not going to eat any of these. I am going to give them to my wife and son, and I think they might like these the best. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, so it's just pure sugar. They're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, also d- delicious and ne- unique to New York, we always have a, uh, an American-made whiskey um, that we, oh, we give to each guest. And we have, That's the real candy. Uh, have to find one that has specific significance to our guest. Mm-hmm. And this is Fort Hamilton whiskey. Oh, I like Which that. is actually made in Brooklyn. They brew that down in, by the bridge. They, yep. How about that? They make it in oh, Brooklyn. Look at that. And that is our, our gift to you oh, to enjoy. Oh, uh, yes. Along with your peeps. Oh. And and anyone else after the you ever have a drink with De Blasio afterward? No, no, he, he's gone. I, I, I have had I have had uh, I have broken bread with him. Yeah, and um, you know, I look. I I met I met De Blasio in 1989. He was the volunteer coordinator for the the David Dinkins campaign. He's the lowest ranking member of the campaign, and um, I was a volunteer. So I would you know I'd go to Times Square. The whole thing was so like picturesque and almost bizarre. They were in this building on 43rd Street. Um, and you remember, there were a lot of adult establishments there. This wasn't, you know, they shared space, not with a porno theater, but with a porno studio where they were making the porn. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty wild campaign. Um, and he was, he had exactly the right sense of humor about everything related to that. Um, and neither of us really thought that Dinkins was going to win and, it, and, you know, lo and behold, he did and changed the city. And, um, but, uh, I, 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 I think the mayor is somewhat misunderstood. The point being, I think that history is partly why he comes on the show every week. He knows 
I know him since before he met his wife. He knows me since before I met my wife. Um, we kind of came out of the same political milieu uh, of a city that has now vanished. And um, he wants what's best for the city. You know, you may not agree with this or that. And some of the criticism, I think, is frankly trivial, like what time he shows up at the office. I'm much more interested in what he does when he gets there. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, he's... He's gonna. He's going to go down as one of the better mayors. You think so? I. I am sure of it. I am sure of that. It. We might have to pick up in a future podcast. <laughs> but I know that uh, if he could run for re-election and he had to run against you, he'd be shaken in his boots. Oh, and I, don't know I have about that. never heard of all the Bill De Blasio stories. I've never heard the De Blasio porn studio story. Well, no, no. So like, he people may come to the podcast just for that. <laughs> but but as as we conclude in this room, and then folks in the room will stick around some questions. Uh, as we wrap the, the recording part of this, I just want to thank you for your leadership, for your tenacity, for your inspiration, for your personal example. You know, the, I've been very critical of this president for a number of reasons, and maybe most of all because of the tone he sets. And the example he sets for our children and every night in New York and in your columns and in everything you do on CNN and everywhere else, you set a very positive tone mm-hmm. for our country and a positive example for our city and for our children. That's how we you, get through it. You're a tremendous inspiration, and I'm grateful that you joined us here on Angry Americans. Thanks very Ladies much. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Errol All Lewis, right. live from Battery Park City in New York. Thank you. Yeah, it's playoff season, and it's crazy out there, but there's always a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. If you're new here, let me break it down. Every show, I offer a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. It's a positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and will make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And this is like your locker room breakdown. The playoffs are intense, and so are the fires in Australia. Australia's fires have been going on for months and have burned more than 17.9 million acres. It's an area larger than the countries of Belgium and Denmark combined. It's like the size of South Carolina, and the fires are blamed for at least 27 deaths. And when you look for the helpers, they're still often American. And that's the case again now. That's the sound of American firefighters being greeted in Australia at the Sydney airport. And it's the kind of reception Americans of so many generations are used to. We're often the folks that run in to help others, many beyond our borders. And we're returning the favor. Australia has been sending firefighters to the United States for more than 15 years. The most recent example was August 2018, when hundreds arrived to fight the wildfires in California. But whether they're Australian or they're American, 
firefighters run in when others run away. And you can do the same and help too. There's a couple of ways you can help. Number one, support local Australian firefighting services. You can donate money to firefighters who are on the front lines of this disaster. An overwhelming number of Australia's thousands of firefighters are unpaid volunteers, and some have been working shifts of 12 hours or longer to battle the flames. I grew up in a house where my dad and uncle were both volunteer firefighters, so I understand what that could mean for families that don't do this full time. So you can donate to the Country Fire Authority in Victoria and the NSW Rural Fire Service in North South Wales. Now, it's a long website, but if you go to cfa.vic.gov.au, or you can just Google Country Fire Authority in Victoria and you can find it. If you want to hit pause here and write it down or come back to this part of the pod, I'll also post it on our social media and in links on the website. Number two, you can help child evacuees to a safe space where they can be kids again. Save the Children is a charity that's collecting donations to build child-friendly spaces where kids can play together and talk about their experiences in a supportive environment. So many kids are affected. Having these spaces allow the parents to focus on recovering and rebuilding what they've lost from belongings to homes. So you can donate to help them at savethechildren.org. That's savethechildren.org. And lastly, number three, you can help the koalas. Yes, millions of animals have been affected, but the port... Macquarie Koala Hospital is still taking donations. They had an initial goal of $25,000 and they've beaten that, but they still need help. The funds will go to distribute drinking water stations in the areas burned by the wildfire and will also establish wild koala breeding programs. By some estimates, more than 8,000 koalas have been killed by the fires. And if you've seen the videos, they're tragic. In addition to long-term projects, the hospital is also working on locating koalas and bringing them into the hospital to be rehydrated and treated for burns. So those are three ways you can help. You can also check our social media if you missed the links. But in this show and in this community, we look out for our neighbors and we help the helpers, especially our first responders and especially our firefighters that are on the front lines right now in the United States, in Australia, and anywhere else. With climate change ravaging the globe, Fire season is now every season. And for these men and women, every day is the playoffs. You can help them as they continue to step into the fire. So do what you can. Together, we can stop the spread of the fires by spreading support and resources. And you've got a story to tell or a resource to share. Find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, this has been a big episode and a big start to 2020, and I got some big updates to share and some big thank yous to give. Now, first off, as it's playoff season, we are filling the seats. So as I shared, 2020 is going to be a big year of live events for Angry Americans and for Righteous Media. I want to thank everyone who came out to the live event last week in New York with Errol Lewis. It was fantastic. Appreciate you all coming out in the cold and the rain, but it was an excellent event. We're really glad to have you there. And... We have more big events coming, including some very big ones. 
next Tuesday, January 21st at Betaworks in New York City. I'll be sitting down for a conversation with Yale Einstein. Betaworks is a really cool place. It's a startup platform founded in New York where they build, run accelerators, make investments, and recently opened a club for builders in New York. So it's an innovative and inspiring place. And as I mentioned in the last pod, Yale is a former CIA officer, a national security expert, and was a global head of elections integrity at Facebook. So she's a person we really want to talk to right now. We've learned in the news this week that the Russians are continuing to attack our elections. And in many ways, our back door is wide open. America's talking a ton about who will be in the election, but not nearly enough about whether or not those elections will be protected. So this is going to be a good episode. January 21st, Betaworks in New York City with Yale Einstein. Go to angryamericans.us backslash events for all the information on that. And I am proud to announce we have three big new ones coming. First, Ambassador Susan Rice will be joining me in New York, January 27th, 3 p.m. Tickets are available starting today. If you go to angryamericans.us, check out Susan Rice. She's going to sit down with me. She's got a powerful new book out. She's an incredible voice on Iran and all things, has an inspiring personal story. And I'm very, very honored and excited that Ambassador Susan Rice will be our guest January 27th at a live event. Tickets just popped up today at angryamericans.us backslash events. And you can get them. If you're from out of town, come join us. If you know folks in town, spread the word. And another big announcement, February 4th, Megan McCain will be joining me. February 4th in New York City, Megan McCain of The View. Of course, the daughter of the great John McCain. I've known Megan for many, many years, and she is right now in the spotlight on all the issues, and she's going to sit down with me on Angry Americans for an extended conversation. You can come out and join us. Both these events are going to be at the Classic Car Club in Manhattan. If you've never been there, a very cool venue, and these are going to be two very cool conversations. Again, January 27th with Ambassador Susan Rice, and February 4th with Megan McCain both in New York, angryamericans.us backslash events. And one that I told you about last week, want to give you an update on uh, the FDNY hockey team will be playing the Chicago Police Stars February 8th, also in New York. This is going to be at the Staten Island Skating Pavilion, so maybe you want to come in town for all this. It's especially important because it's going to benefit the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, which helps 9-11 first responders. And in the news this week, it was announced that researchers found elevated incidences of leukemia in first responders compared with the general population. And the study was the first to show an increase in the incidence of blood cancer, which can occur years after exposure to carcinogens. So come on out. If you're anywhere in the area, if you've got friends in the area, go to angryamericans.us. Tickets are only five bucks. There'll be a silent auction, raffles, 50-50. Our friend Rob Sarah will be there. FDNY hockey team against the Chicago Police Department hockey team. And I will be there to drop the puck. I've never done that before. I hopefully won't slip on the ice, but my son Ryder is going to be there and we will drop the first puck and hope you can come out and check us out there. All right. And another big announcement. California, we're coming your way. And LA, will you be my Valentine? If you know that song, your pulse just started racing and you got excited because you know what that means. Henry fucking Rollins. Yes, the legendary badass, singer, songwriter, spoken word master, activist, comedian, patriot, the legend from Black Flag and the Rollins Band. He's a longtime activist on behalf of U.S. troops and veterans. 
And he joined me and Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans America in years past to do a lot of good work, to launch a public service announcement campaign. And he's always been committed to helping vets uh, and discussing the issues of war. And so Valentine's Day, February 14th, 12 o'clock in Los Angeles, me and Henry Rollins and you. Tickets are limited and are going to sell out. You can buy them now. The venue will be announced soon, but go to angryamericans.us. You can get tickets to join me and Henry Rollins on Valentine's Day. Who doesn't want Henry Rollins for their Valentine's Day? So check them out. These are some of the new events that are coming out, and we got a lot more coming. I may also have another event in Southern California that week. It's going to be either San Diego or LA, so stay tuned here and on our social media. Our events are a lot of fun. They're packed with the four eyes. They're in very cool venues with very cool guests. So I hope you can join us and spread the word. And if you come out to one of our events, I know you'll thank us. But until then, I have some people that I have to thank. A few folks that made this episode and this year happen so far. First off, the great Errol Lewis. He is a national treasure. Uh, and please follow him on Twitter. Check out his podcast and listen to him as often as you possibly can. also want to thank the Battery Park City Authority who hosted us in the event with Errol Lewis, especially Francis Capricci and Merrill Ortiz, Craig Hudden, BJ Jones, Rick, who did the audio, and Nick Spordone, who does all the communications effort. It's a great team over there. They do incredible programming. If you're ever in New York, come check out the Battery Park City Authority. They do everything from River and Blues in the park to events for seniors and kids. Uh, but they were very, very gracious and wonderful hosts and having me and Errol Lewis, and I just want to thank them. Also want to thank Mighty Mercy Rich, Radical Roy Belchek, and Creative Chris Rosenthal and our whole amazing team at Righteous Media. They powered this show. They are playoff all-stars every single week, and they're helping support all the platforms and content around everything we do, and they're also helping planning those big events. Big thanks to Bill Schultz, who's always a playoff primetime player. He's our MVP, making his audio magic happen around this episode, staying up late to help me get it out. Thanks to Oscar Mike, Always primetime players and our awesome merch partners. Check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. Big thanks to Chris Cuomo, my friend Chris Cuomo. I hosted again on his show uh, last Friday. I was on Let's Get After It on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. So thanks to all of you who are new here because you heard me there. Thanks to Chris for having me. Thanks to Vicky Vergolina, our intrepid producer, and Christine and Tom who run the board. Uh, follow my social media and I will keep you updated about the next time that I am on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. Also want to thank Malcolm Nance, who joined me. We talked about Iran. We talked about the escalating tensions in the region. Uh, Malcolm is an incredible Navy veteran and Middle East and warfare expert. Uh, he also joined me back in episode 13 of this pod, so go check that out. Uh, also want to thank all the folks who gave us so much support around the last episode with Mazdak Rossi. Uh, he is an inspiring, iconic, incredible American. Thanks again to him for joining us. Thanks to his wife, Zana. If you haven't gone back and checked out that last episode, it's one of our most popular, continues to get passed around, really innovative uh, Rossi was born in Iran, immigrated here at age nine is an incredible success story. Um, but he is a fantastic player and a fantastic leader. Speaking of the playoffs, this is really cool and interesting. Mark Roberge and OAR 
played the halftime show last week at the Ravens game against Tennessee in Baltimore. Episode 28, I sat down with Mark and heard his entire story of how they started out in Maryland and they're now gone all the way to playing the halftime of their home team. It's a really cool story and check out episode 28, but big shout out and congratulations to Mark and the whole crew at OAR for that big moment. My thanks to them for their consistent support and my thanks to you. It's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans for listening. I'll make you famous. Yes, I'll make you famous. Call 866-33-ANGRY. You can do that anytime, 866-33-ANGRY. You can call, leave me a voicemail, tell me what's got you angry, and maybe we'll use it in a future show. Or you can tag me using the hashtag angryamericans, and I might shout you out here. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. But you can call and get your chance to sound off. You can sound off on social media, anywhere you can find us. And my thanks to a few of you who are definitely playoff MVPs. First off, Vonnie Schallenberger. I thanked you before, Vonnie, but I want to thank you again. Vonnie is down in Fort Worth, Texas. She tweets it at White Lion Roars, and she owns WhiteLionRoars.com, but still has no website there. So, Vonnie, I'm going to keep checking, and you're going to keep listening, and I'm going to keep thanking you. Because you tweeted that you made a donation to TAPS after our last episode in honor of my birthday. And I am very, very grateful for you. TAPS does incredible work. I encourage everybody to check them out. Uh, You said you hope my birthday was a good one. It was. More on that in a minute. But thank you, Vani, for all your support. Also want to thank Heather Wilson down in Silver Springs, Maryland. Uh, She is a Penn State alum and fan, an Outlander-holic, a Potterhead. She focuses on national issues. She's a global citizen and avid reader. And she tweeted, if you aren't following Angry Americans, you should be. Paul Rykoff is fabulous, and she can't wait for Thursday mornings. Thank you to all of you that are there on Thursday mornings. If it's late, hang in there. Bill and I are working hard into the early mornings to try to get it to you, but we try to get it to you uh, on Thursdays for sure. I also want to thank Ayman Moyeldin. Ayman is a super cool guy, very inspiring. You may know him as the anchor and co-host of Morning Joe First Look. It's on Monday through Fridays at 5 a.m. on MSNBC. Uh, if you've seen him on on your TV, he is inspiring. He is enlightening. And he told me that he loved the last podcast with Rossi. And he told me, interestingly, that Rossi is one of his best friends and actually introduced him to his wife. So how cool is that? Thank you, Iman, for listening. Thank you for your leadership and your support. also want to thank a couple of regulars, Anthony Serino in Acadia, California. Now, Serino, I'm shouting you out because you tweeted something that is just awesome. He tweeted that Cerrillo's got some cooking going on. And he said, sailors, marines, even army peats are welcome. And he had two trays of manicotti coming up next with four pounds of fresh Italian sausage and five pounds of meatballs. And he said, angry Americans are always welcome. And he was rooting for his Oregon ducks. But he actually posted a picture of the Italian sausage that he's been making, and they look damn good. So we might have to have an upcoming angry americans event live at anthony's house in california or an undisclosed location but those sausages look amazing dude and i hope i get to check them out in person and meet you at some point maybe when i'm out there to see henry rollins also want to thank a couple of our regulars a quick shout out to sean hull in oklahoma daphne bradshaw in maryland tammy berger in alexandria virginia jim poland wherever you are Mark, a.k.a. the Sonoma Badger in Northern California, and Tammy Rogers in North Carolina. Thank you all. Appreciate you. I see you. And please keep the feedback coming. But I like it. I love 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 it. I
and use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as always, thanks to my family, my amazing wife and two boys. Uh, thank you for all the birthday wishes. It was awesome. Uh, we had family, friends, some amazing music, and it was just the best thing in the world to wake up with my boys and my wife. It's our first birthday. It's my first birthday with the baby, and he loved it. He got to blow out the candles with me, which was very cool. And interestingly, I didn't share this with you. My wife is always thoughtful and always amazing. And what she got me for Christmas that I am so excited about are tickets to see some music. I'm going to go see Post Malone. And I'm going to go see Kenny Chesney in the next couple of months. I will report back. But as you know, I'm a huge music fan. I love the new Post Malone album. I love everything that Kenny Chesney does. The Kenny Chesney concert's not till August, uh, but it's outside in the summer. What gets better than that? So that's an ultimate birthday present for me because I get to wait and use it later. But my thanks to my wife for that. And she was gone all week. Uh, so after my birthday, I got the wonderful gift of having my kids alone for about four days, which was especially interesting because the baby's teething. So I want to send big thanks to our super duper babysitter extraordinaire, Natasha, and to the boys for helping me get through it. Welcome back, babe. We missed you. Uh, I am very thankful for my family as always. I'm thankful for you, dear listener, for tuning in. So keep this playoff run going. Continue to tell all your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on Apple device, leave the show a quick review. It only takes a minute and you can subscribe now and have this podcast hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday morning, just in time for your Thursday commute to work. Uh, and all our archives are that. So you can go back and binge them if you have some time off. You can chop these episodes into pieces. I know they're long, but I also think that they're worth it. You can't force a conversation like the one we had with Errol Lewis into 20 minutes. Quality takes a little bit longer, and I know if you're still listening, you appreciate that. So keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you, I hear you, and I am with you. Uh, And to keep you updated on our international progress, we talked about Australia earlier. We are number 147 in podcasts in Australia. Uh, We continue to score in Belgium, where we remain number 98, and we're 123 in France. So we're going to try to crack the top 25 in some of these foreign countries. We continue to do well in the U.S. We made the top 20 in politics and news, and that's because you continue to share this podcast. So tell all your friends about it and go to angryamericans.us. Check out the video content we've got for this interview with Errol Lewis and every other interview for the most part that we've done. There's video content. Uh, There's background on our guests and on me, and you can sign up to get our newsletter. We will have more events like the ones I told you about. If you sign up for that newsletter, you will find out about it first. But again, we got Susan Rice, Megan McCain, and Henry Rollins coming soon. We're not going to have to guess the guests for a couple weeks. You know who they are, so spread the word. And stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. We will keep this movement growing week by week through the playoffs, past the Super Bowl, deep into the NBA and NHL season, through the Conor McGregor fight this weekend, and through lots of UFC and Monster Jam. And pretty soon, baseball will be here. Not just yet. But for now, it's still football. And it's still okay to be angry. But no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. 
And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. And we can all root for America this playoffs, the ultimate home team. If we stick together, we can unite our country, we can take on our enemies, we can do just about anything. America's the ultimate team game. So if we execute the playbook that is our country, our constitution, and we work hard, especially in the playoffs, nothing can stop us. Coach Taylor had it right. Gentlemen, there's been a lot of talk about expectation lately. Expectation of what we should be able to do to win. People are expecting. People are expecting quite a bit. I see us winning out there tonight. I have no trouble seeing that. That is not what I'm expecting. I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. I expect you boys to execute. Expect you boys to play football. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Can't lose! You deserve this, do you understand? Sir? You've earned this, the right to win. You put that in your head. Me too, coach. Expect to win. You've earned that. So enjoy the games, enjoy the debates, enjoy the playoffs. And I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Stay vigilant, America. And it's knocking heads and talking trash. It's slinging mud and dirt and grass. It's I got your number, I got your back. When your back's against the wall, you mess with one man. You've got a song. The boys are falling.